So <laughs> I've, I, I've been thinking a lot about these leprechauns. About the leprechauns, yeah. Yeah. We were going to have to get to the leprechauns eventually. We can't ignore the leprechauns. No. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is writer and musician Tom Dunn, who recently released his album of Irish folk music, For Fuck's Sake. And... Um, <laughs> it's spelled, spelled Irish, though. It's, it's not a swear, I swear. Right, swear. no, of course, of course. I am thrilled to have you, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing well today, and I'm very, very excited to be here on my favorite podcast. Well, thank you. That's very sweet. You reached out about doing this show, I want to say, like almost a year and a half ago. Yeah, it's probably a while, but... It was a while, and I was just like, I love Banshee. You've got it. It's on the list <laughs> now, right? But much like Charles Pulliam Moore two weeks ago... Or I don't know. Here's the thing, guys. I'm behind schedule in March, and I'm trying to get a bunch of these. I, I want to get through season two as, as quickly as possible into April because I want to actually take my month hiatus. So I am going to probably be editing these real fast, and I don't know how many you're going to get in like a row. But the point is... It's a working vacation in, in April, then. It's fine. Two episodes ago, let's say... Well, no, because in April, I have to write the character files for the next, like, ten episodes, because I want to get ahead of it. That's the whole thing. Because I have, like, a real job is the problem, in addition to doing this podcast, right? I do appreciate your ambition. But anyway, like with Charles Pulliam Moore, two episodes ago on the Stepford Cuckoos, that was something he and I talked about definitely in, like, 2020. And I was like, let me figure out when it makes sense to do that because I don't repeat characters. So like I want the character to have something, some kind of narrative. So after Banshee popped up at the gala and then in Marauders, we started talking. I was like, that would be cute to do for St. Patrick's Day, which again, I'm behind schedule. This was supposed to come out on St. Patrick's <laughs> it's Day. It's still we're, March. It's still It's Irish, still March Irish as we're recording this. So I feel like, yeah, we still, we, we, we got close. This is why I'm not doing theme months anymore. Like just, this is your announcement, Pride Month was a one and done because I'm just too stressed about. So here's the thing on this podcast, every month is pride month. So I don't feel that bad about like dropping. I was impressed conceit. with the pride month. I was impressed with how you, how you nailed that. And it was mostly in, the, in a timely manner. So, Hey, yeah. I mean, but even last year it stretched into mid July, which is fine. I'm fine with like annexing July for pride month, but <laughs> I'm scheduling months out in advance. I'm just like, you know what? I can't ensure that this is going to happen. So I think in June, all of the guests will be queer and or trans, but otherwise I don't think that we're, I think that's just a coincidence of, you know, a lot of my guests are. Also, yeah, I mean, there's like a, probably a good chance of that happening on the show, I feel like. Right. So I'm just like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do holidays anymore because then I get all stressed <laughs> out about like, oh no, I'm behind schedule. That said. At least we had, you know, a skinned banshee to, to Well, really that's the together. thing is I'm so. glad we waited <laughs> because X Deaths of Wolverine number four featuring Moira McTaggart skinning banshee and wearing his face to trick the Krakoan gates. <laughs> Can you imagine if we did this episode and then like a week later that issue came out? I, I mean, when I saw that, I had a moment. I was like, like I was like so glad that we hadn't done this yet. Right, I was like, same. Wait, I was wait, like, oh, what the good. I'm glad I pushed that off until March because who knew that that was going to happen? In fact, I've been open to questions for this for long enough 
that we had a question of like, who do you think is going to tell Sean about Moira? And I was like, well, <laughs> time traveling, sir, but do I have news for you? I have a whole elaborate Moira Sean theory, which we can get to down the line. Well, but I had no, a moment we'll... I was like, no, don't ruin like, I kept rereading that one page to make sure it didn't mess with my theory, but it's safe. Well, there you it go. Okay. Well, we'll get there when we get there. Cause I do think Banshee is one of those characters, despite being a pretty prominent character in terms of branding, who it makes sense to go chronologically with because he doesn't appear that much, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> He's got, well, I mean, he was dead for 14 years, which doesn't help. Yeah. The, the 2000s have not been good to Sean Cassidy. No. Uh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> he looked good at the gala. It looked really good in Secret X-Men. And other than that, it's been a, it's been a rough two decades. That's yeah. It. I just feel like it's been, you know, it's been a tough time for him. He does have like, something like 28, 29 Zaladanes. He has plenty of appearances. I just feel like stories focused on him are few and far between. Right. First, just a bit of business. I said in the Cuckoos episode that I didn't think they had ever turned to diamond form before the Krakoa era. It has been brought to my attention. I forgot a time they did it in the Bendis run. So it is not a product of Krakoa and Resurrection. They did do it before I got to be honest, Bendis is a real blur to me a lot of the time, that whole period. And I... It's a lot of dialogue. I don't mind that. I love a Chris Claremont joint. I just like, I sometimes, I wasn't that engaged with the comics at the time because it was right after Avengers versus X-Men, which I really did not care for. And so I was just kind of like in and out. And it's on my to-do list because like before I can do any of those characters like Tempest or Egg or any, like I really have to reread that whole run and I haven't in right. years since it was like coming out. So I'm going to do that soon. But anyway, thank you to the two or three of you who pointed that out. Sorry for the oversight. Tom, before we get into Sean Cassidy, I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men, your history with these characters and why... Banshee is important to you. Banshee is like kind of tied up in my origin story, I feel like, in a nice way, because it was, you know, like I think a lot of your guests are of the same generation and age are around. So growing up in the early mm -hmm. 90s and being a, a smart kid who didn't misbehave too much, and therefore I was undiagnosed with ADHD for a long time. My parents were trying to get me to play game, play sports and stuff, and I was not into it. So my dad tried to bribe me with like making, trying to gamify sports for me. And try to like be like cool if you, you know if you block a shot in basketball practice if you buy, block enough you'll get we'll buy you i'll buy you a pack of baseball cards he brought me to the card shop the card and comic shop remember those and i got some baseball cards but i what i really wanted were those dope ass painted i think it was series three marble cards that were gorgeous and i got obsessed with those and that was like the one thing that kept me focused on the uh, stupid basketball <laughs> and baseball track. I was like these cards are so dope and I, I like got obsessed about collecting them. I had the entire first and second series of the of Marvel cards, and I would memorize. I memorized all the backs of them. I memorized all of like the stats of every character, like the power ratings they had. Owen Higgins, also an Irish fan, who asked me if Banshee was taken. I was like, mm, he is. Just wrote a piece about those cards and and oh, the stats and that. how yeah. goofy they are. <laughs> oh yeah. I love the variants that they've been doing recently for the main flagship X-Men title that look like the old cards. When Rogue had a one intelligence, I like cried. That was so funny to me. Poor girl. <laughs> yeah, the, the, Two is average, no to be clear. Well, no, but people were like, what? I'm like, that just means she, she didn't finish high school. Like she's, you know, two is like average intelligence and education. But 
harsh. Now that I know more about how graphs work, metrics on that, we're not so smart. Well, I love that it's like a one to seven in intelligence, but also a one to seven in energy projection. Like, who knows? It's all just... But it did help me learn like comparative numbers. And sure, I learned a bunch from that. And you knew that if your favorite characters had a bunch of sevens, you could argue to other people on the internet that they would win in a fight. So that I mean, yeah, I, I could go on those AOL chat rooms. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would, yeah, I, would, I could own those conversations. It was great. Right. Here I am on Scans Daily. Well, she has a Hell sister yeah. ability. So fuck you, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. And then I guess around that time is also like when like the X-Men cartoon came out and there was the action figures. And I, again, like I, I really taught myself to read at those cards. And I remember like also doing the, the whatever the Pizza Hut read it program was. And yep. I grew up in I grew up in, in New Haven where pizza is like heavenly and X-Men in cyberspace. I dragged my parents to Pizza Hut in Cheshire of all places, which is in the lamest town in Connecticut. And uh, <laughs> no offense to anyone from there, including my cousin, to have p- crappy pizza just because they were they had like a they were giving away a VHS tape of Night of the Sentinel. Right. And it had like I a, remember that. And Scott Lobdell and Stan Lee. And I had like read, I read like every book possible, like beat my school in first or second grade or whatever it was to get that like that special opportunity at Pizza Hut with their cardboard pizza. Those little Pam pizzas were not bad. They were, I was seven or whatever. It was fine. So how did Banshee really, oh, the action figures you were saying, there was that right, one, so the, the figures, Toy Biz figure that had a whistle in it. Yeah. By the time I like, like, I don't know, it's just like like supply chain crap or whatever, but like all the cool superheroes of the first round were sold out and there sure. were no toy stores near me by the time I kind of was on top of it. And I think Banshee was like the next series of those. So I had all the villains. Yeah. But then Banshee was there and my family's Irish American. I had an uncle who's from County Clare. I have another a great uncle from Belfast. And so like, there's a lot of Irishness in my growing up. Like my uncle Pat from Clare, it, Uncle Pat's birthday is actually on St. Patrick's Day, which confused the hell out of me as a child. It's Uncle Patty's day. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was super exciting. There was a whole parade for him. It was rad. I love how many Irish listeners wrote in for this episode. I kept getting emails from like Padraig. Like, I know it's just Patrick, but I was like, I love this. He specified Padraig. Okay. But I was just like, I, I love this. I love when I get an email from a Padraig. But I also got another an email from another Connor, one N, but no Concavars. No Conkabars and no Con- no E-Conners? No, no, e- no E-Conners. That's not real Irish. I've complained about this enough times. Don't test me. I was hoping for like one Conkabar. For the non-Irish listeners, Connor is spelled more properly C-O-N-C-H-O-B-H-A-R, which is pronounced in older Irish Conkabar or Conkabar. They dropped the middle syllable somewhere along the line. And it's now just pronounced Connor, but it's spelled Conchabahar. You can kind of pronounce it like Connor. Connor, yeah. Connor, simplified down. Yeah. I mean, you can see how the syllable got elided. It's just yeah. funny because it's so many consonants that you don't say. Which Irish <laughs> is a funny language because once you learn the rules of it, it makes so much more sense than English, for sure. Once you learn the rules of it. Right, and when the you rules don't of it are rules, opaque. You're like, yeah. what the hell is going on? I was in Ireland for the first time a couple of years ago and just all the signs being in both, I was like, this is crazy because it's not a language you see written anywhere in America, really. Right. So I am like, my mother is always like, you don't talk enough about being Irish. And I'm like, there's just not that much to say about being Irish American, honestly, like in, in the 21st century, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the people use it for shitty reasons. Yeah. Like, I hate the like, well, the Irish were slaves. That yeah. drives me fucking crazy. I'm like, okay. 
What's frustrating about that is that it's like, that provokes everyone quite reasonably to be like, fuck you, no, they weren't, that's insane. <laughs> because it is insane, but like, that then whitewashes over the fact that the Irish were exploited and abused and genocide and all this stuff. So it's like, it's like you, you just say what happened. You don't have to, like, it's bad enough without you being like, literally, it was chattel slavery. Because it's like, no. Right, because it was not. Because it, it was not. Really bad. And also but it the was fact that it was really so bad, bad. Means you should have some empathy. You should like, for other people, bad that rather, than, yeah, like, rather than wow. being like, well, my life was bad too 200 years ago. Like, calm down people had it rougher therefore i should care about that is a basic logical path here and so we've just explained boston for where i am people, people from, who've so. never been there that's no, it's where my dad's family's from my family came here in the great hunger i am like genetically i mean i have never done like an ancestry of 23 in me but if you look at like my family tree i'm like 70 30 irish jewish so i'm mostly irish but we've been here for so long in america that i don't really have cultural ties that are direct i have very like irish american cultural right. heritage which is specific and different from being <laughs> irish irish as irish irish people will happily tell you it's it's incredible how much like the like the air quotes plastic patty affects the Irish American culture because like what is Irish American culture is this like really weird yeah well St Patrick's Day in New York where I'm from is obscene I mean it th that's why it was such a funny place for Declan Shalvey and Nick Roach and Chris O'Halloran to set their Banshee Infinity comic recently no I did love that he was sitting in a pub and like not not in and not doing in, like, no craziness. and going like wow like. Hmm, the Yanks really do. Right. So saying like, this is fun and it kind of makes me feel like a cartoon version of home. So right. This isn't much out. like Ireland at all. You know, like it's yeah. like, yeah, no. The things they do here. I did practice an Irish accent for this episode, but it's still so bad that I don't know how much I'm going to employ it. I'm hoping that by the time the Black Tom Cassidy episode comes around, I will have really gotten a handle on it at the very least like be able to do a bad claremont irish accent in the way that mm. i can do a bad claremont scots for moira and rain i just I, it, it embarrasses me more when i get the irish accent so wrong because i can see my grandmother just like that's not what my <laughs> grandparents sounded like connor like i don't she would never say that she'd be like that was great because that's the kind of person my grandmother was but i still feel the need to to do it right I feel like in, in a very Irish American way, I, I feel like I used to pride myself on my accent. And there have, I've, I've had moments where the way I can enunciate certain things, people have, like from Ireland have thought I was born in Ireland. But then like, as I more become in touch, I guess, with my Irishness and away from my Irish Americanness, the more I'm like, I really just don't want to be doing this impression of the uh, mockery. <laughs> well, that's fair. <laughs> Okay, fine, fine. No, well, like, on my I, podcast, I, no, I meant that for myself. I mean, on I'm my forward. podcast, we do mockery, but only of white people accents. That's fair. That's fair. Anyway, I figured at some point we're going to have to read a scene between Sean and Moira, and I'll have to. You'll be Sean, and I'll be Moira. Okay, all right, fine. and that will be great. I think. Yeah, all right. I'll I take believe that. in our ability to do that. We can do that. Good casting. So. You had the Banshee action figure. You were Irish American. That made you like Banshee. You were enjoying it. Yeah, and, and it was a nice connection. Like, my, got my dad excited about it, and he was excited for me to have it. And he was it was exciting, like to show my uncle and stuff. And when I was like playing with the other kids who had like the normal Wolverine, not the Naked Weapon X Wolverine that they right. fun of me for having, um, and or Quark, which was another action figure I had, who was in like <laughs> three long shot issues. 
or something. It was a thing I was able to be like, I have Banshee. He's an actual X-Man. He's a real X-Man. And he was like one of the like old school guys. And it, it kind of was like my like, point of pride and power there. Because even though I didn't, ha- I didn't have Gambit, I didn't have Cyclops. Again, I had the naked Wolverine. Uh, and <laughs> Banshee was like the one hero I had who was like a tried and true X-Man. And I really was proud of that. And there are like no other Irish heroes in the Marvel universe, really. Which no, is there's, it's like there was just a... Banshee, his family, and then Shamrock, who's a hot ass mass, who's from Northern Ireland. Shamrock, I did read that like her origin appearance in, in preparation for this episode, and we don't have to talk about it. Um, oh, we do, because there's a question okay. about Shamrock, so we're gonna get there. Glad I wasted my time on that. Yeah, no, but otherwise, it's not. It's just not a place that you. See. I think because the troubles were so incendiary in the 20th century as a subject for comic books, it's one of those things that a lot of comic book writers, because it's New York, everyone was Jewish, Italian, or Irish, right? Like right. we're in the arts. It's New York. It's like Jewish, Irish, Italians, and black people. That's who's doing right. the arts in New York at that time. And uh, comics was pretty white for a while, but it was still that sort of immigration wave. So you would think that there would be lots of Irish and Italian and Jewish Marvel characters, but there actually aren't because a lot of the Silver Age stuff is about, we're going to write really waspy characters. And there's going to be like, I mean, the X-Men always to me is very clearly like, these Jewish kids in the suburbs are pretending not to be Jewish and they're at their special school and they have to hide their secret customs and practices when they're in front of their friends. And, you know, that is the subtext there in Westchester where I grew up to me reading Mm. those comics. But you also don't really see, like, ethnic whites, like the Irish or the Italians. Right, like, Russians are kind of in that other way, like... Yeah, they're the other. You see them in the same way that you see East Asian characters in the same way that you would see characters from England because, like, British characters... Are wacky. Well, and they're reflecting back on... the Like, the Braddocks are posher than an American character. Like, there's that tension. It's interesting in that regard, too, how, like, Banshee... When Banshee first appeared in the comics... uh, was pretty early on in like what would have like in like what the troubles evolved into uh certainly and so i, I think it made something made sense to like bring an irish character into into play but it is mm-hmm. like it's, it's 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 worth noting that like as the troubles got more and more intense got worse he he gets like disappears kinda, yeah they don't really so rather than address it and even like even when even when you get to like Maeve and like, I like the classic X-Men backup a lot. I do like that story a lot, but it's done that way that with, I think Claremont was good at for his time about like trying to toe a very careful line. The troubles are set dressing in that it's not yeah. the focus. And he's, I mean, it's similar. It's literally the same way that he uses Israel. Actually. That's I was at, I, it made me think about think about Legion and and, and Legion uh, and Jamail. first, yeah. Even using Gabby Haller in the flashbacks in Israel, like when Israel's a new nation, there's a way that he will say, like, "Huh, isn't this interesting?" Like the way that oppressed people sometimes do different political things, like it, because he's exploring that through mutants. And God loves man kills in the same way he's like, "Let's talk about like racism against black people a little bit." Not right, too right. much, right? Because you can only do so much under the Comics Code Authority and you can only do so much when you're putting out a product that is targeted at a mainstream white teenage audience, mostly. 
Yeah. There's ideas about what you can and can't do. You were not allowed to say characters were Jewish, for example, because it wasn't okay to talk about religious stuff. Kitty Pride in 1980 is the first Jewish, explicitly Jewish superhero yeah. at Marvel. The thing is crypto-Jewish until the 2000s, which is crazy to me. Magneto even, yeah, is Magneto implied is heavily, right? He's, it's very clear if you're paying attention in Claremont stuff in the 80s, but it's not oh, until the Magneto Testament that it's like actually explicitly on the page in 2008. So there's just a lot of that. And I think that the Irish thing is similar. You get lots of characters who it turns out are part Irish. I actually was thrilled when Jerry Duggan made Hazel Frost made name Donovan in uh, Devil's Reign X-Men because Emma absolutely should be Boston Irish, at least half. Yeah, Like, I yep. love the idea <laughs> that her father is a Boston Brahmin wasp and her mother is Boston Irish. That's exactly like the Emma in my head, right? Who she should be. And then she embraced that lace curtain lifestyle. Yeah. For power, yeah. Well, that's exactly it. It's like she makes herself the white queen. It's how the Irish became white, the book. It, it is literally, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely incredible book. If you're interested in the history of Irish Americans and in the history of Irish Americans with regard to race and how Irish Americans and Black Americans were pitted against each other historically a lot and how a lot of Irish Americans specifically engaged in racism against Black people in an effort to become acceptably white. Up that social ladder. That book is incredible and I recommend it very wholeheartedly. Who should be required reading? I mean, there's a lot of things that probably should be, but that's one I enjoyed a lot. It's by Noel Ignatiev, and it's great. It's from 1995. There have been a lot more studies on the subject since, but... 95, so that probably also would have, also would have been around this point, too. Where I think that yeah. around when the Gen X TV movie came out, which also was exciting, and also was weirdly formative in my life, because that movie accidentally got me into punk rock in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. So Banshee kind of like followed a through line that changed my life in a really dope, <laughs> like, exciting fashion. Well, it's also when... American interest in the Troubles was sort of like at its peak, right? Because the Good Friday Agreement is 1998. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about like like the Crying Game is 1992. Patriot Games is somewhere in there. Right. And the Crying Game is an Irish movie, but it was a pretty big hit in America. The Crying Game is more famous now for the transgender plot that is handled somewhat it's very complicated. Interesting progressive choice. Not For 1992, there, yeah. I think, I love that movie. I understand why a lot of trans women do not love that movie, is what I'll say. This is not a crying game podcast, but the crying game also was, I think, for a lot of Americans, a window into the troubles. People don't know that that movie's about the troubles because the discussion about that element has become, like, the bigger cultural conversation. But Forrest Whitaker's whole arc as, like, the British soldier that they've captured in the first... Because the movie's in Forrest acts. Whitaker, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good fucking movie. I mean, like, <laughs> the, the acting is astounding. Anyway, sorry, we don't have to get on. But I'm just saying, Irish art that was depicting this... I mean, the cranberries become huge in America around this time. All of that is in the, the consciousness of the time, which is why it makes sense that that's when Banshee comes back for Gen X. Yeah. It's also when Siren becomes a big character in X-Force when she had just been a background character previously. Yeah, the two, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and the two of them, it is interesting, I guess. I hadn't thought about this till right now, but how the two of them, Banshee gets both the the teacher role and he has there are some like IRA related or like underground crime moments in Gen X that he's involved in. At the same time, you have Siren being involved in militancy like she is a militant yes. radical. And there is that's interesting. 
Gen X digs into his past as an Interpol agent and essentially a collaborator with the British government, which is something that he and Siren have never actually really talked about, but that I think... He has not talked much about it at all. I would like to see that. I would like to see it, because I think it would be... Because here's... We'll get there, but, like, my read is that Black Tom is an Irish Republican and that Sean is maybe more of a Unionist. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Not that he's I, actually a Unionist, because he's not from the North. He's not but, a loyalist. He's not a loyalist no, by any stretch. No, but he's, but I think like... He's, 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 he's a bit of a centrist enough that he would kind of be like, well... I understand. If the six why counties the want treaty. to stay, then right, exactly. Like so, I understand why the treaty happened. If the six counties want to stay, you know that's what it is. But I think Terry that. is like return the six counties. Like I think Terry is like one hundred percent that kind of person, especially with the sliding time scale. Because I don't know any Irish people my age who are not pretty staunch Republicans. Oh yeah. The sliding time scale, she definitely, she, she's going to kneecap concerts. Exactly. And like... <laughs> so like that, and Tom would have influenced her also that way. So then when she becomes a paramilitary soldier under cable for mutant rights, I mean, that's a fascinating thing to do with your one prominent Irish young character at Marvel is to have her become a terrorist. And I think that was bold. I do. I'm on, on Liefeld's part and particularly on Nicias's part because he developed that character. He developed her much in, more. It's, it's so much more complexity. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I feel like I mean, Black Tom is involved in so much like crime stuff. We he's a criminal. That, like like a we criminal. don't really get his politics, yeah. but I feel like he would not enjoy. He wouldn't like the crown. Do you get what I'm saying? Like right. I just can't. I feel like he 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 may have sold some guns. The Cassidys also are Irish lords, right? Like they're Irish nobility, which is not something that the British think is worth a shit. To the point where they just give you one when, like, like Prince Harry, I remember when Harry and Meghan got married and they were like, they will be styled as Baron and Baroness Kilkeel in Northern Ireland or whatever. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah uh, who cares? Not to be rude, because I, I like Harry and Meghan insofar as I like anybody who is a member of the royal family of England. But <laughs> I, um, <laughs> right, right. But I was just sort of like, I don't think anybody cares if she's like Lady Kilkeel. Like, that really is not... I think it was last year, Prince William did a big greeting and he spoke in Irish and he still like had to make some joke about how stupid and ugly the language was. And he was like, come on, Will. It's like, shut the fuck up. You don't have to do that. <laughs> shut the fuck up. Did you just see their trip to Jamaica, Kate and William? That oh, was God, embarrassing. Yeah. That was really embarrassing, where the Jamaican government was like, we'd like you to leave, actually. Like, they didn't, they weren't like, <laughs> they didn't say it quite, but they kind of did. And I was like, good for them. So Banshee, for listeners who are not familiar with the character, is a guy who screams. He is a redhead. He's sexy. When he's introduced, he is not sexy. He is a disgusting racist caricature of an Irish person as drawn by... Shelf going on. Yeah, as drawn by Werner Roth. The Claremont Run account on Twitter has a great thread about this, but he has, yes, the Simeon Shelf is what it's called, which is specifically a sort of jowly small-nosed way of drawing Irish people as ape-like in political cartoons in the 18th century, 19th century, and early 20th century. I mean, like, very much up to the 60s when this is being published. Pretty much. It's not like this is a specifically racist depiction. It's just that it is of a piece with many racist depictions of Irish people pre the Kennedy assassination, basically. Because that's when the Irish become white, is when they assassinated yeah. President Kennedy. That's, I think, that's the moment. And that's right before X-Men debuts. So. It's definitely a weird choice at that. Like, it's not, not of that time period, but 
to do that at that time period is still a specific choice. Like it's definitely still a choice. choice. <laughs> and it's Werner Roth, who's a, a Jewish artist. And I'm just kind of like, Werner, what's that about? What was this? We would not draw like a character named the Golem as like a blood libel pamphlet. So like, why are you drawing this Irish guy this way? It's like, come on now. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a choice. Whatever it's a choice. the choice but was, anyway, it's a choice. He's a sympathetically presented character. He's a villain. He was supposed to be a woman, which is why his name is Banshee, because Banshee in Gaelga means fairy woman for people who are not aware. So it's not a very apt <laughs> code name for a 40-year-old dad, but he does scream like a Banshee. It's later established in the classic X-Men backup. This was clever on Claremont's part that- I do like that. that Maeve called him Banshee as a joke, like, and he ended up taking it as like a code name, which I, I like. I like, I like that Maeve's few appearances make her out to be a, a Claremont woman in that She's way. She's a total Claremont dame. She's I dig that. a university student on a motorcycle who has no truck with lords. You know, like, it's a good... She's great. Sean loves a woman who's a total, who's more badass than him. He likes to be topped. Maeve coming there calling him woman fairy. I'm sure he's just like... She also looks like Emma Frost, notably, which is something I didn't know until I read the classic backup a couple years ago for the first time. I was like, she looks exactly like Gen X Emma. Like she has the same blonde bob. And Moira has kind of that same haircut just in like Auburn. Brown. So I guess he has like a, a hair type at least. But uh, so he was supposed to be a woman. Stanley thought it would be inappropriate for a team of characters who are mostly men to be fighting with a woman on the comics page. He was just like, I don't think parents are going to like that. I don't think the censors are going to like that. It's just I don't want it. And so they made the character male. He is working for Factor 3, but it turns out it's because he has a mind control headband on. And... Uh, Here's the thing, guys. You don't have to worry about Factor 3. Factor 3? I, I still don't understand. I tried to read everything, and I don't understand anything about Factor 3. Other than aliens, maybe? Question yeah, mark? here's the deal with Factor 3. Factor 3 is a weird criminal organization led by the Mutant Master, but it turns out the Mutant Master is actually an alien from, like, the Syrian galaxy. Not Syria, with a Y, but, like, S-I-R. <laughs> that would be a twist. The star, Sirius, the dog star. Factor 3 is actually, like, a false flag operation while they try to invade the planet earth banshee in his second appearance is the one who helps the x-men uncover all of this and they defeat factor three and the alien actually kills himself yeah. in, like in shame i guess it's odd but that's the end of factor three and you never have to worry about it again it is also a strange thing where right around, around this point like he says he's like we, we we get that he's being mind controlled at the time by factor three so he's interested as a villain but kind of not really and it's, right it's, I don't, is it, is it said right then that he also was, is this when they first bring up that he was in NYPD, but also maybe No, not? the NYPD is a retcon. That's in Yeah, Gen it's X. a really, it's a weird choice. Yeah. No, he, he, it's mentioned before Gen X, I believe. Oh, no, you're right. It is, but it doesn't it make a ton of sense. I, here's my read on his NYPD stuff is that he was doing a job for Interpol and was working with the NYPD and just don't worry about it too much. Like maybe he was undercover. There's a panel of him. I think it's in that one Captain America issue he's in where he's wearing an NYPD shirt, T-shirt. Yeah. And I think someone, and someone just saw that. made a mistake because they were like, yeah. Irish cop, NYPD. Yeah. Right, yeah. And then Claremont went, Interpol, that's better. That's better. Yeah, my no prize is just that when he was working with the NYPD, which we only see like once or twice, it was because he was coordinating something or was undercover with the NYPD for some interpol operation or who knows like just yeah, don't worry too much about it that's a good no price again that's an irish irish versus irish american kind <laughs> of 
mistake, yeah. right? Like, yeah. because if you were making an Irish American character from New York, cop would be a totally logical backstory in 1960, whatever. But frankly, it'd be a perfectly logical backstory now, but I don't think that's what was intended. No, that's sort of it for him in the classic era. He pops up again when a bunch of ancillary characters are captured by the Sentinels, including Havoc and Polaris toward the end of the original run. And then he pops up, yes, in a Captain America issue after X-Men is canceled, when the Secret Empire is targeting mutants, including Havoc and Polaris again, to, you know, steal their energy for evil purposes or whatever. And it turns out Banshee is hiding out in Nashville. Because Banshee loves country music, which is, I think, one of the, the strangest, but I find delightfully hilarious character details about him. I like it. I think it tracks for me. It's like a very dad thing, it's, which it's is very such a key like part of his character. He's a dilf before he's a, before he even knows he's a dad, right? And exactly. So the fact that he likes country music that much is just like, of course you do. But I feel like if you like like Irish folk music, and then you come to America and are like, what are the Americans up to? Country music is similar in a lot of ways, like the ballads sure. and stuff in particular. You know. But it does feel like he liked the Irish folk stuff, but he's like, whatever. however Americans twisted that folk tradition, it's blowing his mind. This is even better, right? Like, exactly. whoa, like Merle yeah. Haggard, man, whoa. Love this Folks, shit. Grand whatever. old Opry, I'm all about it, right. He comes back in Giant Size X-Men, famously, where he is one of the characters recruited for the international team. He's one of three pre-existing characters to join the second Genesis X-Men. The other two are Sunfire and Wolverine. Wolverine had appeared briefly in a Hulk story, and Sunfire is another character who was introduced in the 60s X-Men, but he comes in way at the end. Go back to the Sunfire and Wolverine episodes for more details on that stuff. But Banshee is the other one brought in. He's not sure if it makes sense to join this team because everybody else is like, like I think Storm is the oldest and she's like 25, right? He's like 40 and he's like, what am I doing here exactly? It is it is funny because I feel like Claremont likes Banshee, but doesn't, doesn't know what to do with him pretty immediately. At all. And because Banshee's just kind of like, ah, I'm like 38 or so and I'm going to hang out with like the, the young 20-year-old, 20-somethings and like, he just, he doesn't want to be cool. He's not trying to be hip with them. I won't lie to you, Professor. I like it here and that's the truth, but I won't lie to myself either. Your young X-Men are all young people, students. Me, I'm barely literate. <laughs> Me, I'm a barely literate ex-cop. That's where he says he's a cop, right? All right, yeah. And like it or not, there's some gray among the Banshee's golden hair. It's been grand, but it's time I was moving on. Rubbish, says Charles. Your hair's about as gray as mine. And, <laughs> and your brain's a fraction keener. And encourages him to stay. And he decides, say, this is after all the, the stuff. When Sunfire is like, I'm out, bye bitches. So he stays on, but he is the one besides Cyclops who is sort of most visibly traumatized by the death of Thunderbird in their first big mission mm -hmm. as X-Men. Again, because Thunderbird is young and Sean watching this young kid die for no reason when he can't save it, it really fucks him up. Yeah, there's, you know, there's, it's like time to say this, there's a lot of historical like solidarity between the Irish and a lot of Native Americans. Native American tribes, yeah. So the fact that he has this connection first to John Proudstar, uh, which develops in, later into a relationship with James Proudstar, vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis, uh, Siren and yes. James' relationship with his daughter, and also with Forge. Yeah, he and Forge have a really tight bond. Yeah, Banshee gets... The, 
there's like a very pri- primal connection he feels to. And it's not guys. spoken about in the comic, is the thing. No. But if you know that many Native American tribes have a formal relationship with Ireland, if you know that the Choctaw in particular and the Irish have a long history of cultural exchange and mutual aid, the Choctaw sent money when they had no money to Ireland during the Great Hunger because they felt solidarity with the colonized people of Ireland. So there's a beautiful monument to the Choctaw in Ireland. There's a lot of stuff there, relationships between Native American tribes, indigenous tribes, and the Irish. So yeah, I have found it conspicuous that he is close with these Native American characters, but it's not really ever spoken. Nothing about that is brought up. It feels like something that Chris Claremont is aware of because his mother is from the UK and it feels like something that's there, but that isn't remarked upon. You know what I mean? Even the way that we just said, like we established that Sean does have a kind of a centristy tendency. I do feel like he still understands to a degree, like that, that oppression to a certain well, degree. Well, so does Forge and, is the thing. Like, yeah. Forge and Banshee are very similar characters. Forge and Banshee are both, both cops from people from a colonized class. population who have become cops and kind of sold out and don't pay that much attention to their ancestral culture. I mean, that's kind of how both of them are characterized. Yeah. I feel like they're both, they're not like the, the quite the ladder climbers. They're not Valerie Cooper, who right, is not like Cooper. pulling up the ladder behind her, but they are. The benefits of their privilege, they can move up the ladder while recognizing what's below, like what they've left behind, yes, I guess. They're marginalized in a specific way and they have opted to throw in with the authorities, which I think is a thing that. Is a very realistic thing. And happens all the time, right? I mean. Yeah. So that is interesting to me. So it's very clear that Claremont doesn't know what to do with Banshee because (laughs) the first thing he does with Banshee, the second that Claremont is plotting himself in 96, is introduce Moira McTaggart. Because the thing that Claremont loves to do if he doesn't know what to do with a male character is have them get into a romantic relationship with a female character that he cares about because then he can write about that. Yeah. Much as people now quite reasonably are uncomfortable with the Kitty and Piotr relationship. And much as I think Claremont grew uncomfortable with it over time, because he breaks it up pretty emphatically after Burns gone conspicuously, just putting that out there. (laughs) The the fact of the matter is that Kitty is a character that Claremont cares about. The most page time the Colossus ever really gets is when he's either dealing with Kitty and their complicated relationship or dealing with Ilyana and their complicated relationship. That's the way in for Claremont a lot of the time. Similarly, Brian, it's all about Betsy or Megan or Courtney. Like he's, you know, so Sean is one of those characters where Moira comes in and Sean's story immediately becomes about Moira more than anything else. Do you want to read that bit when they first meet at the door, the Witter McTaggart? So I'm Banshee and you're Moira. You're a Banshee, I'm Moira. Yeah, that's how we're doing it. Housekeeper, he says, nice widow woman named Moira McTaggart, probably 80 years old, ugly as sin, with 40 years service in Scots Guard. All right, all right, I'm coming. I said I was coming. There's no need for you to lean on the bloody doorbell. Who in the blazes are you? I beg your pardon. My name is Moira McTaggart, and I've been engaged as the housekeeper here by Professor Charles Xavier. Do you want to make something of it then? And he does not. He wants well. He wants to make something of it, but not sure. He wants in to an make aggressive a lot of, way. Yeah. Yeah. So they are 
about the same age, right? Like he, she's actually a little younger than him. I would say that she and Charles, not to age discourse, but the thing is in early Claremont, the characters are aging, right? And like are real time people who age. So I think that at this point, Charles and Moira are like 35 and Banshee's like 40 is how I read it. Yeah, it's, I, I feel like when I was younger, I always just like assumed that like Xavier was just like, was. Old, which is like an old an man, but he's right? not because he's, he's just not. bald. Right. He's just bald and in a wheelchair, which are signifiers that people associate with older people. But he's not. He's just a paraplegic and bald because yeah. he was a Korean War vet and was young when he went to the Korean War. So he's not that much older than the X-Men, like maybe like 10 to 15 years older than them. And Moira is his age because they were students together at Oxford. Yes, I guess I guess it makes sense that they're mid to late thirties, let's say, and Banshee is like forty-ish. Yeah, if he's not quite, yeah, he's he's about forty now at this point. Although I feel like he like kind of ages down at some point. He does, but that's what I'm saying. Like he, well, every character ages down. He's now been forty forever, while other characters have aged up. I think is what I would say. Mm, That makes sense. And other characters have aged up and then down. Like Emma certainly aged way down and now has found like an equilibrium where I would say she now feels like about 40. Yeah. Which is where she should be, uh, in my opinion. But like, so are Scott and Jean. Like they all kind of feel about 40 now because of their kids. Mm, Right. Because like Siren is the same age as someone like Rachel. Not not, not the best example. Well, but that's my point is that, but my point is that because the characters can't actually age, but now they have like, children in their 20s or even 30s it makes the characters feel the appropriate age even like brian and betsy i was just talking about this should be should have turned 65 last year we have an explicit date of birth for them but they can't so it all contracts towards itself anyway it is interesting thinking that like banshee was at this time when they're when this when claremont was adhering more to real time i guess in mm -hmm. a certain degree that he still chose to make banshee older noticeably older because like, he could he, have he aged him down do right, right there. There's no reason to beforehand to believe that he has to be older. When you right, him. they already redesigned uh, him. Like, in Cochrane's initial drawings, there's still a little bit of that Irish jowl thing going on, but it's much less. And pretty quickly, yeah. he's a handsome guy. By the time John Byrne takes over, he's gorgeous. It's his secondary mutation. Yeah, he just gets hotter and hotter every issue. Yeah. The first and actually, like, only one of two arcs that center around Banshee during uh, his time as one of the main X-Men is the arc in Cassidy Keep from 101 to 103, where he gets a letter from his solicitor. He's inherited his ancestral home, Cassidy Keep. And so the X-Men all go there to check it out. It is sort of the first real, like, cute domestic X-Men story to me, like where they're like friends hanging out. It has the vibe of like later stories where, like I remember it's like Storm dresses up in like a gown. Everybody's like, oh my God, she's so beautiful. Like it has Mm. more of a, a relaxed feel to it. But it turns out the whole thing is a trap because his cousin Black Tom, who is a nefarious criminal, met Xavier's half brother Juggernaut in prison and they've become very close. Very close. Very close. And they have set up a trap because Eric the Red, don't worry about it, has given them like Shi'ar technology that will help or whatever. They kidnap the leprechauns that live under Cassidy Keep because that's a thing and hold them hostage. So 
I've, I, I've been thinking a lot about these leprechauns. About the leprechauns, yeah. Yeah. We were going to have to get to the leprechauns eventually. We can't ignore the leprechauns. No. Leprechauns are the first to reveal Wolverine's real name, or not his real, real name, but his Logan. His they chosen call him real Logan. Name. Yeah. They call him Logan. Um, there is, when I was rereading this and, and when they revisit Cassidy Keep in Generation X, and looking at Uncanny, like if I ignore Uncanny X-Men First Class, which complicates it. But that's not canon in my opinion, so you can't. Great, great. Then let's leave it out. Awesome. Uh, in this Claremont run, Sean never sees the leprechauns, nor does he interact with them. Right. My theory in that case is that he is blissfully unaware of them. I think that like in the, the, the Dini Maha, the Aishi, the people of the hills, the fairy folk in Ireland, they inhabit there. Eamon O'Donnell, his family's been keeping this house for generations. He's of like the groundskeeper. He's of a pagan tradition. The groundskeeper. Yeah. Here's the thing about Ireland, guys. You don't fuck with the she. Like you don't fuck you with do the fairy folk. The good that's people. the number one thing you don't do, right? I mean, that's true in all sorts of rural areas of Britain and Wales and all kinds of places. But Ireland has a very specific tradition of like. Don't futz with that. Leave that well enough alone. You do not believe in the good people. You still know better than don't test it. Don't talk about them. Don't bring it up. Like there is no good reason to do that. Family has been taking care of Cassidy Keep for generations, and the the Cassidy the O'Donnell family is well aware about of the good people. Yeah. Oh, they know all about the fair folk. Yeah. And whenever Eamon goes on about the good people, Sean, growing up at the castle, is like, yeah, okay. There's no leprechauns here. Right. Bla- I think Later Black Tom... stories make it clear that Sean, at least now, knows about the leprechauns. And yes. I think now he does. And I think Black Tom always knew about the leprechauns. Because Black Tom was always the outsider in the family. Well, he's the black sheep. He's a black sheep. He's, you know, not openly gay, but clearly the gay member. Like He's the gay one. He's the gay one. And he so he definitely was like, he always knew he wasn't quite, there was, he wasn't fitting in. So he would certainly go looking out for new opportunities to explore. Now, the classic extern backup does show that Sean felt it was the opposite. Sean felt that Black Tom was the handsome one with the dark features. He wasn't a ginger and the ladies wanted him. But again, I think... Black Tom's in a Claremont ascot, which we all know what that means. Which we all know what that means. Only faggots wear ascots in a Chris Claremont X-Men comic. Unless they're in the Hellfire Club, which is a different (laughs) thing. But it's a very specific thing. And also, like, Maeve being like, hey, and he's like, you know, I'm in love with you. And she's like, yeah, but... And he's like, but you don't, Sean. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, because, yeah. Like, it's very much that to me. The, yeah, yeah, like, the, the we fought over the same woman thing is... Well, I... That. It's very clearly... Like, Tom had an affection for Maeve because she accepted him and, like, embraced him. And he felt like he was an outsider. I think Tom was closeted. But I think Maeve got what was going on. Oh, Yeah. You know, I think he played sort of a ladies' man debonair kind of thing so that he wouldn't have to settle down because he didn't want to settle down. Exactly. That's what I think. And so with Maeve, he was like, maybe I could try this. And she's like, you don't actually want to, though. We both know that you don't actually want to. It's sort of how I read that. Uh, 100%. Anyway, in this story, Sean and Leprechauns never interact. Later stories will show him interacting with the Leprechauns. Don't worry too much about it. As of the Infinity comic that Declan Shelby and company just did recently, the Leprechauns are in open communication with the Cassidy family, and uh, it's all pretty sanguine at this point at the Keep. Although Eamon O'Donnell has passed, unfortunately, RIP. But it has been 
like almost 60 years of publication. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was very old to begin with. And they, they revisit Cassidy Keep in Generation X and there's some wacky magic hijinks that go on in so many ways that kind of hurt Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. First, though, Black Tom and Juggernaut capture the X-Men. They want to lure Xavier to Cassidy Keep so they can do bad stuff to Xavier for revenge, for Juggernaut or whatever. But Storm manages to fight through. This is the story where we find out about Storm's claustrophobia. All right. And she manages to push through her fear to help save everybody. Big fight up on like the parapets of the castle. And Sean accidentally, well, not really accidentally. He doesn't want to do it, but he does it. Kicks Tom off the battlements like down into the sea (laughs) and it looks like he's real dead juggernaut flips out and jumps to his own apparent death in an effort to save tom which because they love each other yeah i mean we'll get i i don't want to go too deep on black tom in this episode because i do want to do an episode about black tom eventually but uh these bitches gay like that's like yeah <laughs> they are uh, they are just they're a couple especially once you get to the niciasa stuff in x-force where it's just wholly unsubtle i reread that last night and i was like oh yeah yep this is yep when black tom is dying of a terminal disease that is causing tumors in his body in the early 90s and juggernaut can't visit him at the hospital and sneaks mm-hmm. in and black tom is like kane me boy oh is that you you know like and you know that Nisiesa was trying to do an AIDS storyline in Nomad that they wouldn't let him do. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty overt. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So that's the first big Banshee story. The second one is the one that Claremont uses to write him out, which is in 118-119. This is after their detour to the Savage Land, where he is captured by Zaladane at one point and ends up walking around before that in a loincloth drawn by John Byrne, smoking a pipe with, like, chest on show this is where i feel like when banshee is is, is formally established this is when banshee becomes the hottest of the x-men besides like i mean like colossus is like the big muscular whatever like that moment where he steps out of the hut in the savage land you're just like oh my if you're me and a confused small boy reading this (laughs) comic it's very disarming but so they end up traveling the long way around back to America and stop off in Japan. This is the arc that brings back Sunfire briefly, introduces Mariko Yoshida, his cousin, who will become a really important Wolverine character. They end up fighting Moses Magnum, a villain you do not need to worry about, who no, is no. Threatening, <laughs> to, threatening to sink Japan into the sea with his seismic powers, which are called the Magnum Force, which is funny in retrospect because of... He basically is going to use his magnum dong to sink Japan. He, though, actually, interesting, this is not, this doesn't come up in the X-Men series, so I didn't know this. He's like, Moses Magnum is like a Hulk villain, I think. But I looked him up more recently and saw that, found out that his origin story is that he's an Ethiopian who threw in with the Italians when the Italians invaded Ethiopia. Oh, yeah. So. I think I, and I was reading this, I was like, oh. As an enemy (laughs) for Banshee, that's interesting. But that doesn't come up in this story. But like the idea of, be, especially because like Ethiopia repelled the Italians, like was not colonized. Yeah, they won the the war. 
the sense of like the collaborator thing is interesting here, but it's not really ever really played with. Probably have something there with, with, with Sunfire in the Japan, but you guys touched on that. Yeah, well, and also we're not even really focusing on Sunfire in Japan because we're busy focusing on how cool Wolverine is in Japan, which is sort of the issue with a lot of these <laughs> Japan arcs. Right. But Sean realizes that his sonic power can counteract the Magnum Force, and he ends up nearly dying just screaming his lungs out. To stop a, a, a tsunami, yeah. He's in the hospital for 10 days, and while he survives, his sonic power is completely gone. It's interesting. Claremont, I feel like, doesn't... Again, like he, he likes Banshee, but doesn't know what to do with him, including with his powers, because there's a lot you can do with sonic waves, but Claremont doesn't really know what to do with it, so he's like, when, he, when he gets to the point of writing Banshee out, he's like, great, he just screams himself, and he can't use it anymore. And that happens, I feel like, throughout the 80s, several times, where Banshee's like, I got better. Oh, oh no, my powers again. Right. Me powers boil. Starts getting like, being like, oh, I can use my powers in other ways. But that's not to the 90s. Yeah, it's not till the 90s that he really becomes a, a character of import again. I guess in like 89, there's the Muir Island X-Men thing. Mm. So he has no powers anymore. He hangs out with the group for a couple more issues, but then the Proteus arc happens. And at the end of the Proteus arc, he decides to stay with Moira on Muir Island and be, you know, her boyfriend, but also like the man of the house helping her with technical things around. Like he'll lift stuff for her and whatnot. He's the man, yeah. He says, until me sonic scream heals, if it ever does, the Banshee's of no real use to you, boyo, and I'm needed more here. And then you get a, a thought bubble. When we destroyed Proteus, both Moira's son and her husband died as well. She knows we had no choice, but still, that kind of hurt goes deep. She'll be a long time recovering, and she can't do it alone. So he wants to stay with her. This is all now, of course, really deeply depressing, given everything in the post-Hoxbox era that we know about Moira Kenris. But at the time, it was very sweet. <laughs> and I do like to believe that Moira, in all of her immortal brokenness, did love him and was happy with him to whatever extent she's capable of love or happiness. In the same way that I think Rain did matter to her. I think these two people mattered to her. That is why when we get to X-Deaths, it's such a, a crossing of the Rubicon in terms of like the characters too far gone, you know? I think it's notable that Banshee does not make any appearances in what we've seen so far of Moira's previous lives. No, he's new in Life 10. I think she has never met him before. I think at first he throws himself at her and he's like, he's this charming himbo, <laughs> Dill yeah. himbo. Yeah. And she's just kind of like, again, like she shows up, she's like, I am the housekeeper. Just kidding. Here's my machine gun, which is the weirdest introduction. And then he throws himself at her and she's kind of like, you know what? If it helps my cover, so I already blew my housekeeper cover. If right. it helps my cover to keep, to hang around with this himbo Dilf, then yeah, fine. But I think he really wears on her <laughs> and really charms her. I actually just pulled up Moira's past lives in Hoxpox, and very specifically when we see life four the one that is the closest parallel to life 10 when it flashes through the different rosters of the x-men banshee is not in the 70s team yeah it's scott kurt piotr aurora and wolverine so i agree i think that she did not meet sean or rain until life 10 i think she was trying after the trauma of what happened. Because Kevin is the first child she has after her children in life one. Uh-huh. So I think after that gang after Glay in the most dramatic possible way, she tries to build a home for herself with Sean and Rain. And Teresa, eventually. Yeah. It just doesn't work. 
Right. I think she, um, I guess we, we can, I, I can jump to this in a way now because he doesn't do much for the next decade of comics, <laughs> except for, except for hang around. He finds out he has a daughter. Claremont introduces Siren in a Spider-Woman story. The thing is, though, that instead of sending Siren to the New Mutants, which is happening around the same time, they just ship her to Muir Island to hang out with Moira and Sean. Like, she doesn't become really a major character until the 90s either. Yeah, and like, I, I do, I, I love the Siren episode, and, and I really like the perspective that, like, Sean is a shitty dad. But I do wish we had to see more of Sean on Muir Island with Teresa at this time. Yes, I wish we got a window in. He has it. no idea what to do. He's like trying to wait too hard to be cool dad. I'm the cool dad. And she's like, okay, you what know, you I want, I want you to be dad. my actual dad. Right. I'd love to see more of that. There's also the one arc. He is one of the retired X-Men, along with Havoc and Polaris and Iceman, who gets summoned in to fight Arcade in that 70s arc. He has no powers there, so he puts on like a cat suit and uses a gun and it's very oh, that's sexy. his Interpol moment. It's very hot. I can't lie. I love a man in a cat suit. And then his other big cameo is in Uncanny 193 when Jimmy Proudstar, Thunderbird 2, kidnaps him to try and like get revenge on the X-Men because he blames the X-Men for the death of Thunderbird. But he just can't bring himself to like be a killer or any of that stuff. And they talk him down. And that is an interesting first meeting for Sean and the character eventually called Warpath because Warpath and Siren in the 90s are definitely circling each other romantically in a way that is interesting. That is how he first meets this potential suitor for Teresa <laughs> before he gets to know him better. Yeah, and I, I think... But you were saying... Yeah, so I, th I think... So Moira's life one, she has a husband and kids and she's happy. Mm -hmm. And then everything else goes else goes to hell if she dies. Life 10 is, as you point out, is the only other time she has a child. She has relationships in her other lives, but they're all utilitarian. She marries Charles in life four, but we don't hear about any children. And I don't think they're all utilitarian. I think she did love Charles. Okay, fair. But I think that she wouldn't let herself have a child again because she knows that when she dies, those children get erased and won't be in the next life. And she can't bring yeah. herself to do that. And I think that, I think she she just she did some science and figured out great this whoever this Joe McTaggart guy is if I can get his DNA I can produce a reality warper and that will help me on a mission and he's at Oxford with them so great perfect yeah she did not plan for him to be also a horrible abuser a monstrous abusive rapist no I I think yeah. that's very clearly a surprise well she didn't know Joe McTaggart either until Life Ten so right she doesn't have a script we we go into that in the Moira episode yeah she makes Kevin to serve her purposes and does not expect to feel a motherly affection. To care. To, to care. Because she's lived now for a th over a thousand years. She's seen countless people die, but being a mother again, and then losing the child again, after watching mm -hmm. the child suffer for so many years, is really traumatic for her. And there is that, it's like a Marvel Comics Presents short story. Yes. That the two that, that where she's trying to resurrect- It's an X-Men classic, Kevin. when you X-Men classic, okay, that's right. And she's trying to resurrect Kevin and Sean convinces her to let go. I think that's a crucial moment because I think that's I think that's the moment where Moira really starts to feel for Sean because she he sees her vulnerability and he yes. doesn't judge her for it. And she's like she's kind of like I'm, I've been a monster for all these lives and he doesn't care. He's like he understands kind of in a certain way or respects it. He understands why I want to tamper in God's domain, like you know. But he advises yeah. her not to do it and to like grieve and and let him go. But it's notable now, and again, this is something we mentioned in the Moira episode. The process that she figures out by which she could resurrect Kevin 
is mm-hmm. how the five are resurrecting people now, essentially. Like, it's one piece of that, but, like, she doesn't have the eggs, but she understands right. already that Proteus's power could resurrect someone in a perfect resurrection, if channeled correctly. After that attempt to resurrect Kevin is when Teresa comes to New Island, is when Rain comes to New Island, and suddenly Moira, like she did in Life One, she has a romantic partner, a peer, and she has children. Mm-hmm. And she, she starts building a family on Mir Island. Yes. I think that really affects her. And even when Sean sees the darkness in her, he never really judges her or pushes her away because of it. And it's not till we, we can get here. Uh, mild spoilers the 90s, but like... I want to get to the Mir Island saga and then yeah. break for the character file. So why don't we just Great. real quick blitz through the rest of it? Because there's not much of it. There is a Marvel Comics Presents story that I've mentioned in the Moira episode. It's a weird one. This is after the mutant massacre and the surviving Morlocks are sent to Muir Island to be watched over by Moira because Moira was taking care of them during the massacre at the mansion. She and Sherrod Friedlander had set up like a relief hospital there. Moira's acting weird. It turns out that the master mold has hypnotized her into making a virus that kills mutants, which is again, this is like a weird story that- The meta commentary in the Moira X revelation with this is- is bonkers. Sean also, once again, this screams himself to death, loses his powers. It was the Callisto episode where we talked about this because Callisto is Moira's bodyguard after the massacre. And this is like a Callisto. But this is not by Claremont. And it's just like a weird one-off story that's never really talked about again. So you don't have to worry about it. When she's freed from the Master Mold's mind control, she manages to create a, a cure for the virus and it all. So it doesn't matter. But it does briefly like bring back his power. Yes. But not for long. Um, then in uncanny 250 polaris loses her powers at the hands of her sister zaladane she is rescued by the x-men but they get teleported away by gateway before and they can't they don't end up bringing her with them and so she's alone ends up on a freighter where her weird new powers over negative energy begin making everyone on the ship violent she sends a distress call to muir island Banshee saves her. So then she joins their little Muir Island family, which is like them, and uh, reigns with the New Mutants at that point. But Siren's there. Multiple Man is there, who's another surrogate child of Moira's. You know, strong guys there. Like, there's just a bunch of characters there at that point, setting up for the Muir Island saga, which never goes anywhere because Claremont's original story got thrown out by editorial. This is when Moira is becoming slutty Moira. She is dressing in skin-tight garb and bustiers and all kinds of things like that. Really high-cut panties. She has one of those X-Men training uniforms, but it's like a corset and like a thong (laughs) in yellow over like the black unitard. Sean's like, I like a dominatrix woman, but this is a little too dark for me. It's a very Emma Frost silhouette, honestly. This is because of the influence of the Shadow King, although with the revelations about Moira X, we must now question whether the Shadow King was able to influence Moira X because she's immune to telepathy. I think that using Legion's boosts, he probably was able to affect her emotions, even if he couldn't possess her, but that's one of those things where you just have to not worry about it too much. I think think he he brought out I think he brought out the like six in her. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. He brought out like sniper Moira, but I I think that I don't think she's actually possessed in the way that we're led to believe in the original story. But anyway, the Reavers attack Mir Island and one of them shoots Sean in the heart. He is dying. Amanda Sefton, who is also on Mir Island by this point, basically all of Claremont's like supporting characters who didn't have anything to do are now 
on Muir Island. I mean, Amanda being there makes sense because Kurt is in a coma there after Mutant Massacre, right? I really want a Muir Island X-Men book now that like- A Legends looks, arc looks back, that like looks, looks at that period. At, yeah. With Moira X and what we know about her now. I would, Marvel call me. There's nothing I want more than to write Moira X and Amanda Sefton, please. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> but so Amanda teleports him back to- the sick bay on your island and because healer the morlock is there because he survived a mutant massacre he's able to save banshee's life his healing touch also restores banshee's mutant power once and for all so that's a nice benefit and that is when they are forming the muir island x-men to fight the reavers that's the arc where destiny is killed by legion freedom force and forge get involved Banshee convinces Forge to stay with him on the island and form like a new actual X-Men team because Lorna tells them that the X-Men who died in Dallas are actually alive because they rescued Lorna from the Savage Lands. So now it's like, all right, we got to find the X-Men. <laughs> this is when they decide to go to Cairo to investigate something, Forge and Banshee. And then like right before they leave, they decide, actually, let's not. Let's go do this thing. And then their plane gets shot out of the sky. And the only person <laughs> who knew where they were going was Moira. So they're like... Because of the quote-unquote Because of the King. Shadow King. So hmm. that's one that's hard to square with... Was she possessed by the Shadow? I don't know. This is something for for the writers on the books now to explore if they ever want to, or to just ignore. I do like that moment because there are we know up to this point that Sean was an Interpol and or NYPD. Yeah, but we I think the only time we really see evidence of that is in his catsuit comic <laughs> in the catsuit day. We otherwise he's good with computers, but like we don't you don't get a lot of Interpol, Sean. As no. an investigator or a cop or anything? You don't even really see him using a gun, which you'd like, no. because people don't in comics that often, but you would think that, like, Missy Knight or one of those other, like, super cop characters, he would be using a gun more. Yeah, I guess he's he a cop, is a gun because he can just, like, he can just scream, but, you know, I don't know. The scream and still doesn't use a gun. In Gen X, there is that sequence where he's like, Paige, you gotta look for clues. And she's and like, like missing all the clues. That part's Later good. on. But I do like this. This is a good moment of Sean being like, oh, this guy's an, like, an investigator. Like this right. guy's a, he's a smart cop. He knew what was going on with that plane for whatever reason and set up this whole <laughs> elaborate ruse. He's a smart, like he, he's a good. Yeah. So Sean and Forge go to Xavier's instead. They meet up with Jean Grey there. The Morlocks, who are now led by Mask, the ones who split off from Callisto, attack them. Banshee and Jean end up captured and transformed by Mask in just a classic Chris Claremont fetish moment. Jean gets tentacle arms, like Callisto leader will. And Banshee's mouth is simply removed so that he can't scream. Forge, as it turns out, and this is also Persuasion Krakoan resurrection to some extent, Forge has their genetic codes on file, like their DNA <laughs> profile, and is able to invent something that undoes Mask's transformation by resetting them to an earlier biological point. Um, it makes sense. Sure. I mean, I'll I'll take it. Forge's power is to invent things, so like that's fine, but it is a bit silly. However, it is tech that Moira definitely employed in the Krakoan resurrection, like cuz that's the whole thing is we're going to we're going to create a body that's at an earlier biological point when you were alive, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of what they're doing cuz Sinister has everyone's DNA on file. Forge happened to have Gene and Banshee on file cuz they're X-Men, but Sinister had everybody. Yeah. 
anyway, so that's when Lil Storm, Lil Ro, who's been de-aged by Nanny, don't worry about it, shows up with Gambit. <laughs> and they all get caught up in Extinction Agenda, where Storm gets re-aged. This is when Wolverine and Jubilee and Asian Psylocke also show up to join the team again. They hang out for a while, but when he contacts Moira, she's still like acting super weird. They then go to Shi'ar space where Charles has called for help. They help Charles and Lalandra in space. And Sean tells the professor, Moira's acting real weird. And like, he knows that <laughs> he goes, something's terribly wrong with Moira McTaggart. I know it. And Charles touches Storm's head to like see what she's seen of Moira. Immediately is like, I, I, he's by the eternal, the Shadow King. He knows instantly that the Shadow King is all up in Moira and all up in everyone on Muir Island, including Siren, who has a fight with Sean when they go invade for the Muir Island saga and manipulates him. She's like, Daddy, don't, which is a great Shadow King trick that he loves <laughs> to do. He's a big fan of that. He is so mean. He goes like, Daddy, don't. Have you forgotten your own daughter, Teresa Rourke Cassidy? And he hesitates for a second, and she just cracks him across the face with a rock, which is great. And she says, because again, the Shadow King, so mean, says, shame on you for letting your guard down. Myra's taught me better. Which is just, again, like, you're not a good father, and underlines that. The Muir Island Saga, this is where Claremont gets pushed out. It gets finished up by Niciesa. And instead of killing Xavier, it ends several issues earlier than it was supposed to. Xavier survives and the Shadow King is defeated. The X-Men and X-Factor teams realign into the blue and gold teams of X-Men that will be part of the Jim Lee-directed relaunch. And Teresa joins X-Force. The Muir Island X-Men kind of mostly disperse. Some of them join X-Factor. Some of them are dead some of them don't do much of anything <laughs> there's a new idea that doesn't go that doesn't go anywhere yeah and that takes us right up to the 91 relaunch so i think that now is a good time for us to do the cerebro character file on sean cassidy i will take you through his complete publication history from x-men 28 up through x deaths of wolverine number five and the declan shalvey infinity comic uh, i keep calling it that just because i'm most familiar with him the declan shalvey nick roche and Chris O'Halloran, Infinity Comic. Then we will come back for more with Tom Dunn. We will go through Banshee's otherwise somewhat unremarkable publication history, <laughs> honestly, outside of Gen X. Then we will answer questions from listeners like you. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Sean Cassidy, best known by the codename Banshee, was part of the international second Genesis team of X-Men assembled in 1975's Giant Size X-Men number one, the relaunch that made the franchise a success. An Irish former Interpol agent with the mutant power to produce sonic screams that enable flight, Sean was created by Roy Thomas and Werner Roth as a recurring character in the 60s X-Men run, appearing initially as an antagonist because of mind control by the nefarious Factor 3. Conceived as a female character, hence the codename Banshee, Irish Gaelga for fairy woman, Sean was turned into a man at the insistence of Stan Lee, who didn't like the idea of a whole super team fighting one woman. Years later, Sean's long-lost daughter Teresa Rourke Cassidy, a.k.a. Siren, was introduced to Hugh Closer to the original concept. Sean debuts in 1967's X-Men 28, in which he's a supervillain in the service of the mutant terrorist group Factor 3. Professor Xavier is able to sense that a mind-control headband is influencing Sean's behavior and disables it. Sean, relieved to be free, strikes off on his own to investigate Factor 3 and its leader, the Mutant Master. 
In issue 35, he tracks down the organization's base in the Alps and sends the coordinates to the X-Men before he's captured once again. When the X-Men storm the base in issue 39, Sean is freed to help in the final battle against Factor 3. His sonic scream reveals the mutant master's true nature as an alien bent on world domination, using mutants as a scapegoat. Humiliated and ruined, the alien kills himself. Sean turns up again in issues 58 and 60, not long before the book's cancellation, as one of several mutants captured by the Sentinel robots. The X-Men free him once again. Four years later, in 1974's Captain America 172, when mutants are targeted by the mysterious Secret Empire, Sean evades capture by establishing a safe house in Nashville, Tennessee. He's still in Nashville when he's approached the following year by Charles Xavier in Giant Size X-Men No. 1 by Len Wein and Dave Cockrum. The X-Men have been captured by the living island Krakoa, and Xavier recruits a new team of mutant heroes to rescue them. While most of these 70s X-Men are new characters, Sean is one of three Roy Thomas co-creations alongside Sunfire and Wolverine to make the jump, though Sunfire's time on the team is very brief. Sean also intends to leave after the X-Men have been recovered, because he's older than Xavier's students and feels out of place. But Charles convinces him to stay, even after he's shaken by the death of his teammate John Proudstar, aka Thunderbird, on their second official mission. In the following issue, X-Men 96, now fully plotted and scripted by Chris Claremont, Sean meets Moira, the widow McTaggart, Xavier's new housekeeper. Having expected an old crone, he's immediately taken with the beautiful Scotswoman his own age he meets instead. While Moira and Xavier have a history together, their relationship in the present is strictly platonic, and Moira embarks on a romance with Sean. In issue 101, we learn more about the Cassidy family, as Sean is informed he's inherited Cassidy Keep, the ancestral castle in Ireland's County Mayo. Sean grew up there with his cousin, Black Tom, who was also a mutant and eventually became a criminal. The X-Men decide to take a vacation to Ireland to see Sean's home, but it turns out Black Tom is in league with Xavier's criminal stepbrother, Kane Marco, aka the Juggernaut, and they have set a trap for the team at the castle. They've also kidnapped the castle's leprechauns. Don't worry about it. While the X-Men emerge victorious, Sean knocks Black Tom into the sea to his apparent death. Juggernaut leaps into the ocean after Tom, screaming his name and swearing vengeance. Sean's mostly a supporting character in this run of the X-Men, but takes center stage in X-Men 118 on an adventure in Japan. The villain Moses Magnum intends to use his seismic powers to sink Japan beneath the waves, but Sean is able to counterbalance the effect with his sonic scream. He saves the nation, but is nearly killed from the vocal strain. Though he recovers in the hospital after 10 days, his mutant power appears to be left permanently burned out. Sean remains with the team to give advice, but his time as a superhero seems to be over. In the Proteus arc from X-Men 125 to 129, in which the X-Men, believed dead for a time, are reunited at last with Jean Grey and Moira McTaggart, something terrible happens on Muir Island off the coast of Scotland. In earlier stories, we learned that Moira is actually a famous geneticist with a mutant research facility on Muir, and was only incognito as a housekeeper for some reason. Now, Moira reveals to the X-Men, including Sean, her lover, that she has a dangerous mutant son, Kevin a reality warper called Mutant X, or Proteus, who was locked away in a special cell that has now been breached. Moira is determined to kill her insane omnipotent son to save the world from him, but she fails. The X-Men rescue her and apparently kill Kevin after he absorbs the life force of his father, Joe McTaggart, Moira's abusive estranged husband. Sean is shaken by all the secrets Moira was keeping from him, but given the sudden loss of her entire family, he decides to stay behind on Muir Island to support her, and leaves the X-Men just in time for the rest of the team to begin the Dark Phoenix saga. Sean returns in a 1981 arc where he's one of several retired X-Men to help Xavier deal with the villain Arcade's murder world. Though he still has no powers, Sean's able to use his old Interpol training to aid in the mission. While he's in New York, he's introduced to his teenage daughter, Teresa, whom he never knew existed. 
The girl was raised by Black Tom, who never told Sean his wife Maeve had a baby before she was killed in a bombing while Sean was away doing Interpol work. With Black Tom and Juggernaut sent back to prison, Teresa decides to move to Muir Island to be with Sean and Moira. In 1985's Uncanny X-Men 193, Sean is kidnapped by James Proudstar, the second Thunderbird, the younger brother of Sean's fallen comrade. James intends to get revenge on the X-Men, but ultimately can't bring himself to hurt Sean and lets him go. In Uncanny X-Men 217, after the mutant massacre in which the Morlock population beneath Manhattan was slaughtered, Sean welcomes the surviving Morlocks to their new home on Muir Island. A backup feature in 1987's classic X-Men 16 shows us the courtship of Sean and his late wife Maeve, a motorcyclist who rescued him from corrupt Northern Irish policemen. Both Sean and Black Tom courted Maeve, but it was Sean she loved, and Black Tom eventually stepped aside and encouraged their union. In a 1989 Marvel Comics Presents story by Bob Harris and Ron Lim, Moira is possessed by the Sentinel Master Mold, which mesmerizes her into inventing a virus that kills mutants. When she's brought to her senses, Moira develops an antidote. Do not worry about this story. Sean turns up again later that year in Uncanny X-Men 253, where he answers a distress call from former X-Men Polaris, who has escaped her nefarious sister Zaladane in the Savage Land. Sean rescues Polaris and brings her back to Muir, where she quickly joins a makeshift team of X-Men formed by Sean, Moira, and Forge when the island is attacked by the mutant-hating cyborgs called the Reavers. Sean is shot in the heart during the conflict with the Reavers, but is kept alive by his teammate Amanda Safton, a capable sorceress. The Morlock healer is able to repair his wounds, with a pleasant side effect being that his long-lost mutant powers are finally restored for good. Sean and Forge decide to seek out the X-Men, as Polaris has discovered they're actually alive after their apparent deaths in Fall of the Mutants. He's steadily troubled more and more by strange behavior from Moira, who has become evil slutty Moira. When a plane they told Moira they would be on is shot down, Sean and Forge realize she tried to kill them. They travel to Xavier's school, where they're attacked by Mask and his faction of Morlock survivors. Mask uses his power to transform Sean and Jean Grey, in Sean's case sealing over his mouth so he cannot scream. Forge is able to restore Sean and Jean to normal, using backups of their DNA. After the franchise-wide event Extinction Agenda, in which Sean and Forge reunite with Storm and other members of the X-Men they'd thought dead, they decide to stick together as a new team of X-Men. He calls Moira, who is still acting evil and slutty, but doesn't have time to investigate before answering a distress call from Xavier, who's way up in the Shi'ar Empire in outer space fucking the Queen of the Bird People. Explaining the situation with Moira to the Professor, Sean is horrified when Xavier determines she's under the control of the Shadow King, and so is everyone else on Muir Island. In the franchise-wide event The Muir Island Saga, the X-Men marshal against the Shadow King's forces, and Sean is forced to fight both Moira and Teresa. Once the Shadow King's defeated, the X-Men and X-Factor teams decide to recombine into two teams of X-Men, the Blue Team and the Gold Team. Teresa, meanwhile, joins the new paramilitary team, X-Force. This all leads into the 1991 relaunch of the franchise by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee. Claremont departs the franchise after the first arc, in which it's revealed that Moira had once performed unethical experiments on Magneto. Deeply ashamed of her actions, Moira disappears, and Sean quits the X-Men to look for her. In 1993's X-Men 24, with the series now written by Fabian Niciesa, Sean returns to Xavier's after learning Moira's return to the mansion to help research the Legacy Virus, a new, invariably fatal autoimmune disorder affecting only mutants. Moira and Sean slowly rekindle their romantic relationship. A flashback story in X-Force 31, also by Niciesa, provides backstory for Siren and thereby fleshes out more of Sean's past. We see that when Sean returned home from his Interpol mission to learn Maeve had been killed, he blamed Black Tom and attacked him, permanently crippling his leg. Black Tom, swearing vengeance, then chose to conceal Teresa's existence from him. While Sean returned to Cassidy Keep years later to personally arrest Tom for various criminal activities, he still did not learn of Teresa, who had since been sent to boarding school. 
In the present, Sean and Teresa try to build a deeper relationship, but Teresa finds it hard to accept him as her father. He realizes that's too much to ask of her, and instead wants to see if they can be friends. This leads into a Deadpool miniseries, also written by Luciesa, in which Black Tom has escaped from prison, now infected with a virus that is amplifying his powers and driving him crazy, while physically turning his body into wood. Black Tom hopes to use Deadpool's healing factor to cure himself, bringing him into conflict with Deadpool and Deadpool's love interest, Siren. We flash back to Sean's final job for Interpol, in which an important witness was killed by Deadpool to save Sean's life. The incident ruined Sean's career, and he immediately retired. In the present, Sean helps Teresa rescue Deadpool and make sure Black Tom will receive proper medical care before returning to jail. At Xavier, Sean bonds with new student Jubilee and the X-Men's unexpected houseguest Emma Frost, formerly the White Queen of the Hellfire Club, but now attempting to turn over a new leaf. This leads into the franchise-wide event Phalanx Covenant, in which Sean teams up with Emma and Jubilee to rescue a group of mutant teenagers kidnapped by the titular Phalanx, a race of techno-organic aliens. The kids who survived this event become a new class called Generation X, and Xavier tasks Sean and Emma with supervising their education at a new iteration of the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters to be based at Emma's old school, the Massachusetts Academy. Sean becomes a regular cast member in the Generation X ongoing, initially by Scott Lobdell and Chris Bocciolo. Stories in Gen X and the 1994 X-Men Annual show us more of Sean's time with Interpol, tangling with the likes of Hydra and the serial killer Arkady Rosevich, who would later become the Soviet super soldier Omega Red. Sean had captured Rosevich and handed him over to Russian authorities, not realizing the Russian government intended to turn him into a weapon. In the present, Omega Red attacks and nearly kills Sean, blaming him for everything. The villain's defeated by Sean's student, Chamber. In Generation X-25, Black Tom, now even crazier and even more made of plant matter, decides to hurt Sean's students to punish him for supposedly taking Teresa away. Threatening the lives of Gen X, Tom insists that Sean kill Emma Frost. Sean refuses, but Emma takes over his mind telepathically and forces him to do it, actually faking her death, allowing their student Penance to dispatch Black Tom's plant form. With their students still missing, actually sent by Black Tom to the middle of the sea, don't worry about it, Sean and Emma begin searching for them as the franchise-wide event Operation Zero Tolerance begins. With no lead, Sean and Emma are approached by Generation X's arch-enemy, the parasitic mutant sorcerer M-Plate, who offers to give them information in exchange for Penance, whom he'd once held as his prisoner and source of food. To trick M-Plate, Emma pretends to consider the offer, which disgusts Sean. He tells her to stay away from him and the children. In the flashback issue Generation X-1, Sean is inexplicably a detective with the NYPD. Maybe he's undercover embedded with the NYPD for Interpol? Don't worry about it. Anyway, they were investigating the Hellfire Club, and Sean ended up rescuing Emma Frost from men intent on harming her. After a confrontation with the Dark Beast nearly got Sean killed, Emma used her telepathy to erase everyone else's memory of the day's events. In the present, Sean visits Mirror Island to touch base with Moira, who's recently been diagnosed as the first baseline human to contract the legacy virus. When Moira decides to lock herself in a sealed containment facility so she can research the virus without infecting others, Sean promises he will wait for her. Sean returns to the Massachusetts Academy and makes up with Emma, now that the kids have returned safely from the zero-tolerance situation. Meanwhile, in the pages of X-Force, Teresa has her throat slit by her former teammate Farrell, who had quit X-Force and become a supervillain. Sean wants to help her recover, but Teresa prefers to be left alone. Back in Generation X, now written by Jay Ferber, Sean and Emma are forced to accept Emma's evil sister Adrienne as co-headmistress at the Academy. Eventually, under writers Warren Ellis and Brian Wood, Adrienne arranges a bombing that kills Gen X member Sink, and Emma kills her in retribution. Sean reels at the death of one of his students, and then is left devastated when he learns Moira has been killed on Muir Island by Mystique. 
Sinking into a deep depression, Sean begins abusing alcohol. With Sean in no state to teach and Emma's lies making the kids lose trust in her, Generation X decide to leave the Massachusetts Academy as that book concludes. Sean returns to Ireland, but then pivots into Joe Casey's run on Uncanny X-Men. Driven to extremism by his anguish at the death of Moira, Sean establishes the X-Corps, an international mutant police force that will manage mutant affairs worldwide from their headquarters in Paris. Sean impresses villains into service, employing captured telepath Martin Wingard, one of the ladies' mastermind, to force their compliance. Concerned about him, his former students Monet, Husk, and Jubilee also join up so they can keep an eye on his behavior, but he still elicits concern from Chamber, who at this point has joined the X-Men. It turns out Mystique has infiltrated the X-Corps, and she subverts the organization from within before slitting Sean's throat and leaving him for dead. Mystique's people attack Paris, causing untold destruction. Four years later, Sean appears in the event Deadly Genesis, in which we learn he's recovered from Mystique's attack. He travels to the ruins of the Muir Island facility to peruse Moira's files, hoping to help the X-Men find Charles Xavier after he disappeared in the wake of the decimation, in which all but about 200 mutants worldwide were mysteriously depowered. While Sean was lucky enough to retain his gift, his vocal cords have not fully healed after Mystique slit his throat, and he's not at full power. Sean discovers a disturbing tape recording Moira made during the events of Giant Size X-Men number one, establishing via retcon that she had another class of students who Xavier pushed into battle before the Giant Size team, with disastrous results. Booking a flight back to New York to tell the X-Men what he's learned, Sean is shocked when the X-Men's plane, the Blackbird, appears and flies directly toward his commuter aircraft. Leaping out of the plane in an effort to save his fellow passengers, Sean finds his sonic scream is too damaged to repel the oncoming jet, and is killed when the Blackbird collides with the plane and destroys it. It turns out Vulcan, the lost third Summers brother and one of Moira's lost students, was flying the Blackbird. Do not worry about it. Sean's death is mourned by Emma and by his daughter Teresa, who initially refuses to believe he'll stay dead. After all, X-Men never do. Four years later, in 2010, he's one of many mutants resurrected by the wicked Selene to serve as her minions in the franchise-wide event Necrotia. He proves strong-willed enough to briefly break Selene's mind control, but dies again when the story concludes. The following year, Sean and Moira are among the X-Men characters temporarily restored to life in the X-Men tie-in to the company-wide event Chaos War. After defeating the Native American deity called the Carrion Crow, the dead X-Men return to the grave. Two years later, in Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers, Sean is one of several deceased X-Men characters resurrected by the Apocalypse Twins using a Celestial Death Seed. Do not worry about this. Sean is brainwashed and crazy in this story and is rendered comatose by the Wasp. The Avengers put Sean in a special healing chamber that will ostensibly purge him of the Death Seed's influence over time. Five years later, in Matthew Rosenberg's Astonishing X-Men, Sean is forced out of his healing sleep early by a Reaver attack. He is a gross, silent zombie, but tags along to help Beast and Havoc's new team of X-Men regardless. Eventually, he sinks his power with Dazzler, which helps him clear his mind somewhat. He departs to figure out what his life is now as a weird zombie guy, and returns in Rosenberg's Uncanny X-Men, where he gets crushed to death by a Sentinel. In the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten, by writer Jonathan Hickman, Sean is one of countless mutants to become a citizen of the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Resurrected by the power of the mutant circuit called the Five, Sean is back to his normal status quo for the first time since 2006, and mostly hangs out in the background for the first few years of the Krakoan era. After re-establishing his friendship with Emma and doing a mission with her marauders, Sean is shocked during the 2022 event X-Deaths of Wolverine when he's contacted by Moira McTaggart, whom he believed had died so long ago. He promises to help her as she's being hunted down by her former allies among the mutants. Moira then kills Sean, flays the skin off his face, and fashions it into a ghastly mask which he can use his DNA profile to sneak through a Krakoan gate. That's rough, buddy. X-Men, X-Men. 
if we did this at night, you could have seen my, my Irish flag uh, lights on my patio, but it's too oh, bright right now. That's cute. Hi, we're back with Tom Dunn, writer and musician, Irish American, flat scan, because I knew that if I had a gay guest for Banshee, it would just be like four hours of us being like, gas, daddy, gas, and just like didn't seem. Sorry, I'm a flat scan. No, it's okay. I'm saying I intentionally did that because I knew that. <laughs> Like it would just not be a an educational episode, except in like educating people probably too much about my proclivities. Those abs are are pretty smoky. <sighs> anyway, in Chris Claremont's final X Men story in the sixteen year Claremont run, the relaunch of X Men with Jim Lee issues one through three, the big reveal happens that Moira had tampered with Magneto's DNA when he was a baby on Muir Island. Don't worry about it. Go back to the Magneto episode. She had tried to alter his morality. In House of X, we get more context for why she's like, so here, this revelation makes her hate herself. She's like, I, I did horrible unethical medical experimentation on this person. Like, I don't deserve to be your friend or whatever. He says that she's overreacting and she like flips out and leaves him, basically. This is once the writer changeover has happened. This is the moment for me. Just like cements my whole like more Rashawn theory. I think while they had their family on Mir Island, I think Moira was happy. As happy as she could be. Yeah. As she, yeah. For the first time since her first life, she was like happy in her like homestead. Yeah. The Shadow King showed up, did his thing. I don't think he controlled her, as we said, but I think he brought out her other selves and the dark side of them. And after I think once she's exposed for what for meddling with Magneto, I think Moira realizes that she has kind of lost. She was so content with her family on Mir Island that she's lost focus on her mission. Yeah. Well, the House of X retcons now. It, I mean, because this is when Magneto so breaks so <laughs> away. Right. So Magneto is genuinely really fucking pissed about this because she did it before she did it before they looped him in in Life 10 because they loop him in in Life 10 after Uncanny 150 when he's back to being an adult. So it was her attempting to ensure that he would be loyal to them before they managed to convince him. And then they just managed to convince him to join up. So she's like, okay, great. It's such a good retcon. (laughs) It's such a good fucking retcon. It really, apart from the one or two things we're like, huh, everything else is it's purely additive. It's so good. What happens now, we know, is that the reason Magneto goes off the deep end and becomes a real bad guy again in the 90s is because not only does he discover this tampering with his mind, potentially, although Claremont makes it clear that it was unsuccessful, although Magneto doesn't trust that. Uh, right. For good reason. <laughs> yeah. But it's also that he was in on this thing with them and he finds out now that he might have gone in on it with them because she tampered with his brain. Like, it, it's it's so much He's deeper. Like, yeah, he, he doesn't know what his free will is anymore. And that's... Yeah, it's so much deeper than just, I, I had to babysit your kids for a while. Now it's like, I fundamentally went all in on this political project with you, and now I have no idea if it's because I wanted to or because you made me. And so Moira's now not just, like, this freakout she has at Sean, which does seem like an overreaction at the time, now makes a lot more sense because she, as far as she knows, is on her probably last life and may have just fucked up the game in her last play at it. It's such a good moment. (laughs) Sean quits the X-Men to like chase after Moira. She pushes him away because even then Sean's kind of like, look, you know, you 
fuck with Magneto's DNA. That wasn't cool. But yeah, like, it wasn't great. I love you. I still love you. I, I still get love it. you. I understand that you thought you were doing the right thing and you're kind of overreacting. No one's that mad at you. This is the point where she's like, I have gotten distracted from my mission. I need to cut him out. Yeah, I love him too much. I need to cut him out. I can't allow myself to care about anyone anymore in this lifetime because I'm running out of time is the vibe I get. Is She's running out of time to make it all work. And that's when the legacy virus breaks out, which is absolutely new to Life 10 because that's strife altering the timeline. There is a great moment there in that fight where, she's, where Sean says, the best laid plans don't always work out for the best. Mutter, you're only human. And she goes, human. Human! Human! Just the problem? Don't yes. touch me! It's so good. Can't you understand? How can I ever look at myself again or look at you? any of you without being reminded and the way that this dialogue now hits there's a double meaning there i think in retcon now where she says without being reminded and part of that is being reminded of her first life i had a family and i was happy right how can i look at you without being reminded of how mutation has destroyed everything and he comes to the mansion because she shows up there to help charles and hank with their research on the legacy virus he convinces her that they should get back together. But it's pretty casual as opposed to, there's a funny bit where he spends some time on the Canary Islands. So when he shows up, he's bright red. <laughs> they color him like Warpath, actually. It's like that magenta color. And she's like, what's up? And he's like, Irish jeans were not meant for the Canary Islands. He has a cameo over an X-Force. He meets up with Siren. Siren is like, I just can't really ever accept you as like my dad. It's just too weird. And he's like, well, could we be friends? And she's like, okay, we can try. And she pops up in Gen X once or twice. Like, that's sort of where their relationship gets left until now. Yeah. Like, they say they'll try being friends, which, again, there's this, this great implied history of her time on Mir Island, which I'm very intrigued by. But we don't know much about it. We don't it. get to see. And then they know like, she fell in love with Jamie Madrox, which did not pan out well for her. But otherwise, in, we don't really know. Well, you know, she fell in love with the real one, but then they fallen angels. Who knows? Doesn't do not worry. I'm not. We're not going to get into that again. You don't want to talk about Siren and Madrix having a child. I again? simply <laughs> can't do that. So that's when Black Tom shows up, and he has a mysterious virus that's turning his body into wood over time, and making his powers go out of control, and driving him crazy. And Juggernaut wants their help, and eventually Siren um, brings in Deadpool, who she has kind of like a flirtation with because his healing factor. Like a transfusion can help Black Tom. And so Banshee helps do that. This is where we get, we do get more Interpol backstory. We, we get a lot of Interpol, Sean, here, which is really cool in this storyline. Also, I got to admit, might be my favorite Sean costume. It's not bad. I it's don't hate it. It's pretty cool. The co- I don't know if they, something about that collar. I'm digging that collar. Yeah. But so basically, we find out about an old case. He ended up leaving Interpol in disgrace because he was investigating this gangster and the gangster was killed in the crossfire because he made a mistake. His old Interpol partner like double crosses him now in the present for like revenge on him ruining their Interpol careers or whatever. It's not super essential. And again, like the Interpol stuff is always a very light touch, but it's weird to be as weird as a Deadpool miniseries. It's so weird as a Deadpool <laughs> miniseries, but it's a cool you know, story. Yeah, why not? So now that he's hanging out at the mansion more, he bonds a little bit with Jubilee, again, to set up Generation X, which is about to happen. He's there when Emma wakes up from her coma, quite dramatically, again, to set up for Gen X. And then Phalanx Covenant pops off. 
Banshee is away from the mansion when the X-Men are replaced by the Phalanx, like by drones who look like them. He teams up with Emma and Jubilee and Sabretooth. This is when Xavier and Jean are trying to telepathically rehabilitate Sabretooth in the basement. I hate that. I forgot how much I hated that. (laughs) Yeah, it's bad. So they all team up and they save the teenagers who've been captured by the Phalanx, who uh, besides Blink, who unfortunately sacrifices herself to save them all. And the surviving kids end up becoming Generation X. That is then Sean's most consistent publication ever. It's 75 issues with plus some annuals and stuff. He and Emma become the headmasters of the new Xavier Schools for Gifted Youngsters at the Massachusetts Academy. They disagree a lot on teaching methods. He doesn't trust her because he knows her as the White Queen. This is, I mean, she's never been a good guy before. This is when Emma (laughs) becomes a good guy, right? So he's right not to trust her. My recollection of reading Gen X as a kid was that Sean and Emma had a romantic relationship at some point. And they never do. They never do. There's a question about this, but I think they fucked. We'll get there. There's a question. We'll hold that. We'll hold off on that. But I think their relationship makes a lot more sense if they did like once. Mm, Okay. Okay. It doesn't come up in the book because the book's about the kids and the kids don't know. That's kind of my feeling. Anyway, so early in Gen X, Omega Red attacks Sean because (laughs) we get... The other big Interpol flashback (laughs) with Sean where he was hunting Arkady Rosevich when Arkady was a serial killer roaming across Europe. It turns out he's been trying to bait Interpol into capturing him because he doesn't want to be experimented on any further by the KGB. Um, But Sean captures him and gives him to the Russian government to be sent to prison, he thinks, except actually they just turn him into Omega Red. Uh, So now in the present, he comes and, and fights Banshee, but Chamber defeats him. There's a nice moment in this because Magneto is tied up in the Interpol. Like Sean, as an Interpol agent, encounters Magneto. Mm-hmm. And I have this panel saved. I'm going to find it. But there's an, earlier in the Claremont run, the first time we see Banshee and Magneto interacting, Magneto has a conversation. He, he goes to visit Moira on Mir Island. They have a conversation. And he does talk to Sean outside and they kind of have like a, I think Sean had fought him once when he was in like, on the team, but they have a they have a conversation outside Mirror Island, and uh, they there's a weird camaraderie about it mm-hmm. between the two of them, and it's like never addressed again. And I really like the idea. I know like Banshee is Interpol's literally a cop, and he's kind of a cop, but I like that he always he's I had this like long standing like kind of friendship in the background or mutual respect with Magneto. Yeah, I like that too. I get the guy. He means well, and I don't like his methods all the time, but I get him. Mm-hmm. That's a very Sean attitude, I feel like. Absolutely. So in Gen X 25, the kids are attacked by Black Tom, who has escaped from prison again, where he was being treated, but now he is even more of a plant monster. He has put a spy on the team, which is their classmate Mondo, who's actually a plant clone of Do not... <laughs> Frankly, I don't understand this storyline and I'm going to have to like go back to it at some point for a Mondo episode, I guess. So just such a weird B plot that goes on for like 20 issues. And, and then it goes nowhere after Lobdell gets pushed out of the book by editorial. So it really just does not matter. Don't worry too much about it. But anyway, Tom is super crazy now and feels like Sean stole Terry from him. So he wants to take away Sean's new kids He captures the Gen X kids and tries to force Sean to kill Emma or he's going to kill the kids. 
Emma is like, I'm not going to let another class of students die and like forces Sean to apparently kill her. She's actually faking her death though, because she's Emma and that's something she loves to do. This is a nice thing that Gen X does is they, it does explore Sean's power. He uses sonar. Mm -hmm. Emma takes over his mind and uses his sonic waves to like hit a correct frequency to knock her out and slow her heart rate to fake her death. To make her look really dead, cool but thing. she doesn't. Yeah, it's really cool. There are some moments here where she's like, yeah, Sean, you're a himbo. I'm going to tap into your brain and use your sonic waves that are incredibly powerful and useful in ways you've never thought of because you're... Much like she does with Bobby when she's in Bobby's body. Exactly. This is when Operation Zero Tolerance pops up. Tom, turns out, doesn't have the kids. He, like, sent them on a raft in the middle of the ocean. That's where they meet Glory in the shape of dreams. Don't worry about that. (laughs) Sean and Emma don't know where they are. The only student who's left who ends up cutting Black Tom in half and ending his threat for now is Penance. That's when Operation Zero Tolerance happens around when Lobdell gets pushed off Gen X. So the Gen X kids are in L.A. Meanwhile, Emma and Sean are trying to find them, and the X-Men aren't contacting them either, so they don't know what to do, and M-Plate approaches them and says that he will tell them where the other Gen X kids if they give him penance back. And Sean is like, absolutely fucking not. Emma pretends that she's going to. She does what she does to Cassandra Nova, basically, in New X-Men, and is like, sure, I'll do that, but is not actually planning to do it. Even though it's revealed in the end that she never intended to give penance to M-Plate, Sean is pissed about it and tells her off. And Penance is also pretty pissed about it. This is probably one of those reasons why Monet has never quite 100% come around to Emma. (laughs) 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 And she's like, I wasn't actually going to do that. My God, you must believe me. And he's like, how can I am? Words come cheap to you, just like they do to have villains I've met and fought in the past. Sometimes I forget you were a villain once. The kids get back of their own power after an adventure in Los Angeles and Banshee shows up in Excalibur because Moira has now come down with the legacy virus. Is this where Moira looks like uh, Velma from Scooby-Doo all of a sudden? It's a mood. It's a mood. I think this is the golem. Oh, you think the replacement was before this. That makes sense. My current read on it is that when Moira gets the legacy virus, which she actually did get... She locks herself in stasis a la Life 9, and that's when the golem is activated. There is a scene where she locks herself in the stasis, though, again. But she gets locked in there with rain. I think that's already the golem. Because that's the golem that talks to Charles about being a human getting the virus. It has to be the golem. Moira wouldn't have that conversation with Charles alone. Doesn't matter. Can't do it. <laughs> Go back to the Moira McTaggart episode. Point is... Moira's going to lock herself in containment so that she doesn't infect anybody until she's come up with a cure. Sean doesn't want her to do that, but she's insistent and he tells her that he will wait for her, which is very romantic. This is also, apart from the Phalanx Covenant sweatpants panel with the abs, this is probably the hottest Banshee's ever This is a pretty sexy Banshee. I was going to ask. He's got facial scruff. He doesn't have the mutton chops, which I know some people love him. It's not my favorite look in the world. I had a mutton chops face. I don't, I'm not going back there. Uh, (laughs) He's got regular sideburns and sort of a regular haircut, and he looks absolutely gorgeous. He's got more of a dad goatee in some of the other Gen X issues. Yeah. This is, this one, he's got, I like the the scruff is a lot. It's, Mm -hmm. the dad goatee is clearly like divorced dad phase at 42. Yeah. Sean goes back to the school. Emma slaps him across the face for being so rude to her during <laughs> Zero Tolerance. He is apologetic for, like, 
calling her a villain and whatnot, and they end up okay again. This is when Larry Hama is now writing Gen X. He and Siren keep kind of vaguely crossing over. When Siren gets her throat slit by Feral, he goes to try to be with her, but she doesn't really want to see him, and she goes to live with a distant aunt, I think, on her mother's side in California, which that aunt has never made sense to me. But what <laughs> this is also where she gets possessed by an evil necklace, and then this plot is never resolved. So, you know, just don't worry about it too much. Then there's a Gen X storyline, 60 and 61, where Black Tom, who is now regular Black Tom again, is with Juggernaut. This is a Christmas story. Oh, yeah. They are now mentoring the real Mondo, who exists and is not friends with the Gen X people, like never this met him before. more confusing. Uh, yeah, this is very confusing. Mondo retcon, I don't. Mondo has beef with Cordelia Frost, Emma's younger sister. So that's sort of what's going on there. Tom wants to fuck with Sean. Sean is upset that Tom is now raising another mutant teen like he did with Siren and using him in crimes and whatnot. But again, this plot doesn't go anywhere, so don't worry about it. Then Jay Ferber takes over the book, or maybe is that may already be Jay Ferber. I have to double check. It doesn't matter. The point is like Sean doesn't do much in the latter half of Gen X. Ooh, I do have this one panel I saved though, where I think it's in the Dodson art. I don't have the exact, I didn't write the issue down because they have the danger grotto mm-hmm. at the mass Academy which uses Krakoa. Yeah, you're right, it does. And there is a moment in the Dodson run where Banshee is talking with Forge and says, like, what about Krakoa? Wasn't the biosphere originally part of that thing? And Forge says, Krakoa needs to be, wants or needs to be whole again for some unknown and possibly dire purpose. Mm-hmm. And they have a conversation about what Krakoa wants and the pieces they've s- scattered, which I found interesting in hindsight. Yeah. Then the Jay Ferber run starts and uh, Emma loses a large amount of money in like a stock market crash and brings in her sister, Adrienne against her better judgment to help with the school. That goes really poorly. Go back to the Emma episode and other, literally any episode about Gen X. Uh, we've covered them all now, except for Jubilee. Can you believe she's last? I'm, um, <laughs> That's that was supposed to happen like a year ago, but my, the guest I have booked is just very, very busy with her wildly successful television series. So I get it, but hopefully this year, anyway, that's when the Counter X rebrand happens. Warren Ellis and Brian Wood take over for a bit. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the book is good, so there's that. It, it is. But, they, they, but, they, but, but yeah. They have not, talent and problems. Not great, um, yeah. That's when Sync dies famously toward the end of the book. Then there are five more issues that wrap up the series. In 73, Sean calls up Moira because he's like, you know, she's out of her vault. I'm kind of reeling because our student just died, but Emma and I are rallying. We're going to try to train these kids more effectively. Let me see what Moira's up to. And he calls her and it redirects from your island to the Xavier school where he's put in touch with Charles suddenly. It's a very weird phone tree for the 90s to happen, but... I don't think it's... that Call forwarding was around in 2000. From Scotland to Westchester? With Shi'ar technology? Absolutely. I stand corrected. You're right. Anyway, Charles, Charles Xavier, you old bastard. I didn't expect you to answer. No, actually, well, I'm a wee bit embarrassed to say this, but I've still owed Moira a phone call for months now. I just never managed to get around to it, what with all that's happened. I had thought, I thought this was her line, but I must have misdialed. Is she in then? So here's the thing. A few days ago in Dream's End, Moira McTaggart was killed by Mystique, and Charles never called Sean. No one 
thought to call Sean to tell him that Moira had been killed. He is often the forgotten, like, early X-Men. <laughs> Maybe Charles feels weird because he and Moira, like, had an astral fuckfest before she died. That's possible. But it's still, like, what... This is one of those many crimes of Charles Xavier that I forget about. But the idea that he does not give Sean a heads up and tell Sean over the phone after he gets a call forwarding and it's like, I've been meaning to call Moira. It's like, Chuck, come on. Those phone calls about someone you love dying are never easy. But I feel like it is very, very depressingly very Charles Xavier. It's very Charles. He, to just not he worry avoids about the that. emotional conflict, right? And he's mm -hmm. like, um, yeah, I'm not going to bother. Sean immediately descends into alcoholism, or at least to alcohol abuse, let's say. I, I, did, I did have a, I, like, alcoholism has, can be a trope that can be abused in lousy ways. Yes, it is a stereotype of Irish people, for yeah. sure. On the other hand, drinking is a big part of Irish culture. It just True. is. Siren's story arc of alcoholism, I think, is really powerful and realistic and is fleshed out. I don't actually think Sean is an alcoholic. I think no, Sean I think he's he's depressed and he's drinking a lot. alcohol because he's yeah. depressed about Moira. But that just compounds his depression. Obviously, eventually the Gen X kids are like, "Hey, we're gonna leave. Like, we're done with this." <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, that makes sense. Honestly, like, bye." And he decides to go back to Ireland. He's like, "You guys, well, not 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 before he brings skin to Boston for a gun run with the with some IRA connections of his and gets." skin drunk in a bar that's true i forgot about that do you want to talk that, about that, that? does have thoughts about that issue i just I, or are they just what you just reported? i just find it an odd issue <laughs> it's an odd it feels out of well because the ira connections it doesn't totally track sean obviously has some shady connections from his interpol times well because like, he was undercover a lot so yeah he knows people but it is sad that he's like skin get in the car we're going to boston yeah, I mean, you know. I like that side of Sean. He does dark stuff, but it's but weird. But Skin's story is always about, like, street crime. Like, they can't right. get him away from that. So, you know, that's kind of unfortunate, too. Speaking of stereotypes, you know. Yeah. Then he pivots into X-Corps, the Joe Casey Uncanny X-Men arc, where he has fully gone crazy. He's gone full of fash. He's a fash now. Honestly, go back to the Stacey X episode for more of a breakdown of the X-Corps arc because we went into it there, but... He has impressed supervillains into service as, like, mutant super cops. He is keeping Martinique Wingard, one of the ladies' mastermind, locked up in a tube in his basement to telepathically control the villains and force them to behave. Eventually, it turns out that Mystique has infiltrated the operation, and she kills Sunpire, which was a nice bit of continuity cleanup that I appreciate, but also sneaks up behind Sean and slits his throat. Sean's heel turn here is not, it's set up. It's certainly, it, it tracks. He, he has a history as a cop. It's extreme. It's an it's extreme, extreme turn for the character. It feels to me of a piece with what Morrison did with a lot of characters. Joe Casey and Grant Morrison were working kind of closely together on this period, relaunching the darker franchise. Very 2000s subversive, yeah. Gen X is canceled, so we use Emma and Sean for something else. Emma pops up in New X-Men to have her arc there, and Sean gets used here. It's sort of wrapping up that book. Like, the Gen X kids cameo here chambers on the Uncanny X-Men team and gets to see how far Banshee's fallen. But this is sort of his last storyline, really. I have a slight theory. This isn't, like, as fleshed out as my Moira does love Sean, but being that Gen X begins with the Phalanx, which is obviously tied up in Moira X, 
I wonder if some of these ideas came to Sean through like conversations with Moira, almost as like a contingency plan, whether totally intentional possible. or not. I don't know, but if, if she was kind of like, we need, there should be another school because I, I don't really trust Charles. Right. I should have a backup plan of, of kids. I'm going to wink that at Sean in case it ever has to happen. And also I have an idea in case, in case Xavier messes up, I should have some cops here, some mutant cops in case as a backup plan. So when she dies and he's drunk, he's like, Moira talked about doing the fash cops backup plan. Maybe I could see it. I'm going to do that. I don't really want to take that agency away from him, though, because I do think that it's him going back to his Interpol mentality. It's sort of like Moira going back to her previous mentality, right? This project that I was doing has failed. Yeah, absolutely. Then Deadly Genesis is his next thing because he's been in the hospital. His power is again on the fritz because his vocal cords were severed by Mystique. Again, him and vocal cords. He goes to the ruins of Muir Island because it was destroyed in Dream's End when Moira died to look through her. So here's the thing. Xavier is missing, right? Because this is right after the decimation. Charles and Magneto have both disappeared. So the X-Men are looking for Charles and Sean is like, well... Maybe he and Moira have like a safe house that I don't know about. I'll check Moira's record. So he goes to Muir Island and finds a recording from Moira explaining what happened in Deadly Genesis's retcon, which is that she had another class of students she was training nonviolently, including the third Summer's brother, Vulcan, and that when the Krakoan incident happened in giant size, before he recruited the giant size team, Charles telepathically trained up those kids and sent them in and they were slaughtered. And Moira's like, he's going to wipe my mind. I know it so that I won't know that this happened. So I'm making this tape and she leaves it for Sean or for whoever, but it's, it's now left for Sean emphatically. I don't love the storyline. I hate everything about this. Actually. It does the, the, the Moira X retcon, I guess. Well, cause now she has to be lying in some way. Yeah, She has to be manipulating Banshee in some way here to try and impact Charles. Like, it's unclear what she's doing here, but there has to be a play from her. This is the one Moira story that still feels truly discordant with the retcon. It felt discordant before the retcon, too. It sure did. It was Because here's the thing. Moira has never been the sensitive one who was like, Charles, you're being too hard on these kids. Like, that's not her thing. It's the opposite. It's sexist, honestly. It feels like the writing doesn't actually go back to the characterization the two of them had in the 70s. It's just sort of like, well, she's the girl, so here's how she would react in this Very situation. emotional and sensitive, and that's bad. Yeah, it just, I don't like it. Anyway, he decides to go book a flight to Westchester to tell everybody about this weird tape. <laughs> He's in, like, mid-flight, and Vulcan, who is back, I'll get to this in a Vulcan episode someday. God help me. Oh, God. <laughs> Deadly Genesis sucks. Don't worry too much about it. Vulcan has stolen the Blackbird, like the X-Men's plane, and he flies it toward the plane that Banshee is on. And so Banshee jumps out of the plane and starts like sonic screaming over, except his power is so fucked is up weak. now that he gets crushed between the Blackbird and the plane as the Blackbird explodes the plane. It's uh, it's it's an unfortunate death. Not to nitpick here, but there's a Z-axis when you're flying, right? Like, he could have just dropped <laughs> or gone up. 
It's very Charlize Theron and Prometheus when it's like if you ran left or right, this disc that's rolling after you wouldn't be able to crush you because it's a disc. It's unfortunate that Sean, like, you know, Gen X finally gives him a bit of a, he's not a main character, he's not a teen, but he's like, he's a regular for 75 issues, finally. Then they turn him evil and kill him he's off. He's drunk yeah. and depressed, and then he becomes like a fash cop, and then they're just like, what if you get crushed between two planes? And that's that. Yeah, so he's dead, and uh, that was 2005, and he's been dead ever since, until like very recently. Just to give you a brief overview, listeners, of what happens in the time since he comes back briefly in necrotia but doesn't like everybody comes back in necrotia he doesn't do much of importance then there's chaos war which we just talked about in the separate cuckoos episode a couple episodes ago he and moira are among the x-men characters resurrected in the claremont and simonson chaos war x-men tie-in moira ends up possessed by the spirit of destiny lots of weird stuff here if you think about the retcon this has to be the golem it's weird it makes no sense but it's a nice Two issues? Yeah, just don't... This mostly can't be canon anymore, so don't worry too much about it. I don't (laughs) think it will ever be mentioned again. Then he pops up in, of all things, Uncanny Avengers by Rick Remender, where he is one of the dead characters reanimated by the Apocalypse twins, the children Warren had with the final Horsemen of Pestilence. When you put it that way, yeah. uh... (laughs) So they use celestial death seeds to reanimate these characters like Dakin's another one and turn them all into horsemen of death. Banshee is super possessed and evil. There's a bit where he sees Captain America, and this is actually a fun Irish versus Irish American bit. He's like, I always wondered how a nice little Irish boy like you could see what was being done to mutants, could see bigotry like that and just ignore it. I love this because it is, it's evil Banshee. And this is like the first time he's really, again, we, we talked about his kind of like centristy copness. Yeah. And this is, so when he's evil, <laughs> the death scene is the first time he's kind of like, hey, my people have some pretty messed up history and you've ignored that. Shame on you. Only because he's evil, though. Right. You as an Irish American should understand the plight of mutants, but it's only because, yes, he's been driven to evil extremism. So now he is, well, because the problem is Uncanny Avengers is a centrist book. Uncanny Avengers is about how, the M-word speech is good, and Wanda's right that mutants have no culture, and Janet Van Dyne's cultural appropriation fashion line is a great idea to, like, bridge the gap. The book is fundamentally politically operating from a failed premise to me, so that's kind of the issue with the book, right? Right, right. Because Sean's <laughs> right in what he says. To, I know. To, this is, he's, I, and I, I love Steve Rogers, but Sean is 100% right about this point that he's making. So Evil Sean goes there. Yeah. And then he's right. Only because he's evil. Jan flies into his mouth and, like, explodes his throat so he can't use his powers. They end up putting him in, like, a a Zordon tube or back to tank or whatever you want to call it that (laughs) will slowly erase the effects of the death seed. And he's sort of just in there in a coma for a long time with Hank keeping tabs on him. And then he pops up in Rosenberg's Astonishing. This is, like, very recently... He's like a gross zombie guy and he doesn't speak ever, but he ends up helping Hank and Havoc with their quest. There's like a sort of interesting thing here with Banshee as this like feral attack dog, mm-hmm. but it's never explored. <laughs> and even after Dazzler just like bright lights him back to sobriety. He does a team up with Dazzler, which is cool. Like a power circuit, a mutant circuit. That's neat at one point. Once he like kind of regains consciousness or like 
humanity. There's some nice, there's a, a nice moment where he's just like, I got to learn to live with the death seed. Time to let nature take her course. And then he just is back to being a feral zombie for a while. Yeah. And then eventually in Rose and Canny, when everybody's dying in the lead up to House of X, particularly like any character who's like narratively problematic that you want to reset, he finally finds the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, a giant gold sentinel at O.N.E. headquarters that steps on him and kills him. He is stepped on to death. He does do a big screamy that blows up the Sentinel, but he's dead. And then he comes back in the 2019 soft reboot, House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman. Where now he just has sexy abs and gets skin. Yeah, he hasn't done much yet. He has a team up with Emma in an issue of Marauders that was really fun. I was happy to see that because the vibe was there with them again. They also like chat at the gala in a way that felt kind of flirtatious, which I enjoyed. And then in Excess of Wolverine number four, Moira, who's been depowered, is desperate to get back onto Krakoa so that she can do nefarious things. So she summons Sean to a bar. Do you want to read this with me and you be Sean and I'll be Moira? I don't know if I want to relive it, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sage's Logbook, Audio Recon. Vocal tag, Moira McTaggart, cross-reference with singing stone recordings. Scanned, 336-hour window, towers, satellites, network, positive identification, collating, 24 cell phones. Location ping, O'Donnell's Irish Pub. Transcript. (coughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for coming at all, Banshee, especially on such short notice. Of course, Moira. Still can't hardly believe it's you. I mean, it feels like we've known each other a thousand years. But now you're saying, I can't quite process it. That's literally the case. I know, I've dropped a lot on you. What are you thinking? I don't know. This is a lot. It's a lot to process. Here's the sample version. The good news is I'm back. The bad news is I'm already dead. Anybody's guess whether it's the cancer or the mutants that gets me first. Help me. Of course I'll help you. But first you need a doctor. And I need to talk to... No! I'm past doctors. And this has to stay between you and me. Will you help me get on the island? Tonight? Right fucking now? Or not? He turns away for a second and she clubs him on the back of the head. (laughs) And skins his face off so that she can put on his costume, wear his skin as a face mask, a la Alpha from The Walking Dead. It felt like an homage to that comic. Walks through the gate because she's wearing his skin. She's like, it's fine. They can resurrect him anyway, and he won't remember it. So whatever. I am impressed that she had the technology to, you know, skin him that well. You know, do a clean cut. And I, yeah, she's good. Moira lived for a thousand years in the preserve. She knows how to field dress an animal, I assure you. (laughs) (laughs) Who's going to tell Banshee once he gets resurrected? That's my question. My question is exactly that. And I feel like it has to be Emma, right? If anyone's going to. But the fact that he doesn't know. Yeah. So here's the thing. Emma will think, I can't tell him. He should never know for his own good. But she's the only one who has like a reason to want to, except... We've seen in solicits that Sean is going to be in Legion of X for at least one arc with Kurt. And Kurt is the kind of person who's going to feel really guilty about keeping that from Sean. Right. So it has to come up somehow. I think it won't until someone has a real story for Sean and probably for Sean and Rain, like to deal with that. And Kevin, I mean, like you need to do something with her family at some point. Got more of his, more of her family in Inferno for that reason. I understand time. Like there was so much to happen in Inferno and it was so awesome. But you wish we'd gotten more time with them. 
Yeah. I get it, but like we didn't even have time for Rogue, you know, like. Narratively, the more emotions you put in there, the more complex the story would have gotten, which would have blown the whole thing up. Yeah, it's like, it's all about page real estate and there yeah. just wasn't enough real estate for it. But I have faith that, I mean, the fan reaction to face off Moira and Banshee was so extreme that I'm sure it's going to be something that comes back up when yeah. it makes sense to then there's the X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic by Declan Shalvey and Nick Roach and Chris O'Halloran that we mentioned. It's a St. Patrick's Day story. He is feeling kind of alone and disconnected from Irish Americans in New York City. <laughs> so he decides to zip through Krakoa to Ireland to go to Cassidy Keep to see Eamon O'Donnell, the steward who has managed the household all this time. It turns out that Eamon died years ago while Sean was dead. That tracks. Yeah, it totally tracks. He's informed of this by Black Tom. They start fighting. Black Tom is with a leprechaun. Sean assumes that Black Tom killed Eamon, which is a little uncharitable. I like the story because it does point out how much of a... Sean's generally a nice, a good guy in general, mm -hmm. but he's always been a prick to his cousin. <laughs> yes. I got choked up, honestly, reading this because it points out how much of a prick Sean has been to Tom. Yeah, well, I mean, we do learn in the next worst story about Siren's backstory that, like, the reason that Tom has a limp and the reason that Tom took Teresa is because when Tom told Sean about what had happened to Maeve, that she had been killed in an IRA bombing while he was away undercover, Sean flipped out and attacked him. Yeah. Blamed him for it. Blew him off the ledge, broke his leg. And broke his leg, and Tom's like, well, fuck you then. I'm not going to tell you that she was pregnant because fuck you. I'm going to take the baby and I'm going to raise the baby because frankly, you shouldn't have. You can't be trusted to control yourself. Reading this as a new dad definitely like, ch like changed my perspective a, a, a lot on it where I was kind of like, I, I totally understand Tom's point of view here more, more so than before where he's just kind of like, Sean, you're irresponsible. Yeah. You ditched your wife. You ditched your kid. I tried telling you and you blew my leg off. Right. So they fight, fight, fight in the present. And eventually Sean is like, fate took her poor mother, but you, you took my daughter. She needed her da, Tom. And he says, for what it's worth, Sean, we thought I was giving her one. Yeah. Which is something we've never quite heard. It chokes me up. Yeah, it's great. And they both collapse to the ground, upset. And then Teresa walks up because the leprechauns have summoned her and she's like, it's not abandoned. I gave them the day off because it's St. Patrick's Day. You saw one <laughs> dusty room. <laughs> I did love that twist. She encourages them to get it together. She's like, you two need to make up. This is fucking stupid, honestly. She's like, you were gone for a while, da. And while I don't forgive Tom for what he did, we've made our peace since. You know, like, you'll always be my father. Life did move on while you were gone. He has a funny bit where he's like, I guess I was a zombie for a long time. So... I miss some stuff. Yeah. A detail I really liked in that story. I know it's all Irish creators, which is awesome. And the first time that things yeah, happened very for Sean. Cool. But Black Tom has a couple of fuckles. He throws a few words of Irish in there. Yes. Which is in a really nice way. It's really, it's organic. It's, it's how people talk in a really cool way. And I think it's very telling that Sean does not use a couple of fuckles. He always calls Moira Akushla pulse of my heart. Yeah. And he'll throw like boyos and laddies and stuff in, but not Gaelic. Yeah, no, Akushla is about as far as he goes. Yeah. And he has Solana got in his farewell video to uh, mm -hmm. Siren. That's all the Irish he ever uses. It's telling to me that, like, Tom's in touch with it, with this more so. Well, and so is Teresa, because as they leave yeah. to go to the pub together, she calls Happy St. Patrick's Day after them 
in Irish. Yeah. So Tom taught her Irish. Right. And Sean probably wouldn't have. Him passing that down, this language that is often ignored. It's not dying, but it's often ignored. Well, but not just ignored. It was actively... It, yeah, it's, it's on the endangered list. The British tried to kill it. Right. This is Tom giving Teresa a heritage that she might never have had if Sean had raised her. I find that really beautiful, yeah. I do too. I think it's really smart. I think now is a good time to get into the listener questions. Andy Michaels writes, hello, Connor and Tom. Connor, thank you for having the love of my life on the podcast. I have two questions, but if you only have time for one, then dealer's choice. First, what is Banshee's favorite band or artist? And Tom, you absolutely cannot say Thin Lizzy, even though that is the correct answer. I mean, it's established Banshee does not care much for Irish music or guitar-driven, incredible rock and roll music from Black Irish artists like Thin Lizzy. I think Merle Haggard is, and Hank Williams are his favorite artists. That is canonical. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I'm feeling a Loretta Lynn kind of moment. Or like when Moira died and he's drinking himself into fascism, it's very like Johnny Cash covering Nine Inch Nails. Like, that's oh, 100%. The, yeah. The energy. <laughs> Johnny Cash is about, is about as, like, edgy as, as Banshee goes, which is not like that he's not edgy, but just like, yeah. But mainstream edgy, right? Like, Banshee's yeah. not listening to punk that's just like no, banshee the pogues are too much for him to handle exactly Th- Thin right? Lizzy is definitely too much for him to handle though you should all be listening to there's Thin too Lizzie much cussing general. on pogues records <laughs> oh, for sure can't truck with that <laughs> second one time in college tom drew a giant penis on my back in sharpie while i was asleep in his bed it didn't tell me and i didn't notice until like a week later what kind of shenanigans do you think the leprechauns of cassidy keep get up to and is it anything like that thanks for everything you both do andy michaels atomic ghost on the discord oh leprechauns would totally pull that kind of shit with sean and i feel like sean blamed it on tom a lot growing up yeah i feel like sean would wake up with things shaved into his hair or like like he's so he cultivates those mutton chops and that beard whenever he has facial hair it's like very sculpted so i feel like sometimes there would just be words shaved into it or something and then he'd have to spend because he's a redhead it takes a while to grow that it probably had to spend like a month growing his mutton chops back and was very annoyed yeah but he wakes up sometimes with those mutton chops gone and he would flip out at tom for being the jealous prick that he was, but it was really leprechauns all the whole time. And Tom's like, "Twas the leprechauns," and he's like, "I don't. There's no such thing as leprechauns, Tom. You fucking idiot, asshole." And the more I, th- I think about out, it, the more it's also like that, that. Tom's power is so much about like is is about the earth, the soil. Mm-hmm. And so, he, so of course he, he knows. He knows, he knows what's up with the leprechauns with the good yeah. people. He knows what's going on. And Tom, and yes, yeah, Sean's like, absolutely. Tom, stop messing with my hair. I worked so hard right. on this. You wrecked my leather jacket that I wore to that concert. You jerk. And he's like, no. It was the good people. (laughs) Harry from Ireland writes, Hi, Connor and Tom. Seeing as problematic King Cassidy's getting an episode, I thought I'd write in on this topic. Why are there so few Irish comic characters that have stood the test of time? When you hear about Irish characters, it's usually half Irish American characters like Steve Rogers or Kyle Rayner at DC. Mm. Why is this? And why do you think Sean has stood the test of time? Is it his nature to always pick the worst possible solution, or is it something else besides the sex appeal? As always, thanks for taking time to read my questions, and I wish nothing but the best. Also, congratulations on the album, Tom. Best wishes from Ireland, Harry. That's so nice. Thank you. Um, I think, so I think, obviously, we talked about the kind of racialized uh, depictions of Sean at his Mm -hmm. earliest days. 
even so, there is a, something about his character that is st- still treads in stereotypes about he's the happy-go-lucky Irishman, if you will. It's a bit, yeah. a bit of sta- stage Irish, but there's an appeal to that. There's a wholesomeness to him that, like, I think because he's like he's a positive dude. Like the the kind of worst thing he does in the X Men is that he has he doesn't have a lot of drama to bring into anything. He doesn't have a lot of hangups. He's kind of like cool. Well, all right, twenty-two-year-old Cyclops is here and he's talking to Professor X about a plan. 39 and I'm just going to sit back and listen to that 22 year old who's anxious as fuck sort things out and he's just like he's pretty chill that's like but that's also a bit of a stereotype that he's like so nice but I think that his niceness in that happy-go-lucky oyish way makes him endearing I think the sexiness helps I do think that I think unfortunately I think because there are you know more Irish Americans than there are like well i was gonna, the thing is it's an american people. right yeah it's a it's an american comic and much like you're going to have i mean if, if it's the industry was in new york the people working on these comics were jewish right. italian and irish american generally so that makes sense as like an origin story for a character if you if it's your origin story in new york city and you can't say jewish and the italians are a little dicey still at that time for some people so like irish is a neutral way of communicating again not quite white enough not quite posh enough if you're a jewish person creating captain america as a way to try and influence american politics and stress we need to fight the nazis and all of that an irish american character makes sense as like we're gonna move at it from the side you know what i mean right it's, it's the good and bad of, of, of that especially earlier marvel age is that when you had so many irish jewish italian creators coming from legitimate immigrant backgrounds and diaspora yeah. and and like yeah, marginalized their parents backgrounds. are immigrants but they're right not, you know right and that like th- they can draw on that experience of their parents diaspora background and marginalized mm-hmm. backgrounds but in safe way in ways that you know are ultimately safer in hindsight then yeah. they may have been pretty radical at the time, but are ultimately safer. I do think that because there are so many, yeah, because there are so many more, frankly, Irish Americans than than like, Irish people Irish at this people, point. Like, yeah, it becomes on the so earth. kind of casual and easy. And I feel like no one, people don't know what to do with Irish characters because they often default to to the, everything they do falls in stereotypes. You have an alcoholic, you have the happy-go-lucky, mm-hmm. or you have the dirty criminal terrorist one. Right. It's kind of like all those are the options that people have, and and unfortunately, I, unfortunately, I think a lot of people when they are thinking of a character like British, they have they feel like they have more class level, more range to do with with, with, with British yeah. people. It's like, oh, you can have like the the, the very posh one, the, the Psylocke one. You can have like the right, very, but you can also like, have chamber. You, have you know, like right, you can, chamber, right. Of course, it turns out Chambers upper class in Weapon X, but like, don't worry about it. Here, here's the thing: I think that the biggest problem we identified this earlier is that for much of the 20th century, when the iconic superhero characters were being established, Ireland was a controversial political mm-hmm. topic. So, if you have an Irish character like Banshee or Siren, you actually have to talk about the troubles because it doesn't make sense right. not to. And this is the same reason why, like, there aren't that many Israeli characters either, for example. These were hot button issues at that moment. Or, like, how many South African characters are there at Marvel? Mm, good point. Maggot. One maggot <laughs> that I can think of. He's it. And he's like, 
first of all, he's usually blue. Second of all, it never comes up. So like, that's what I'm saying is it's one of those things where because the political situation was dicey and initially you had the comics code authority preventing you from tackling dicey political stuff. But then even after the comics code starting in the nineties was kind of devalued. And then by the two thousands was thrown out entirely you look at the lawless period in Marvel comics that I've talked about with like the Joe Casey mm-hmm. run and stuff, or like Morris and talking about Emma's co-cabot that's post comics code pre Disney acquisition in the early aughts. That's only a few years after the good Friday agreement. So again, right. like, Ireland is touchy. And I think that there just wasn't an interest in Digging into that in a way that was potentially going to be incendiary, I think you needed, like, because the other thing is, when you talk about British characters, there are a lot of British creators in superhero comics. There aren't that many big-name Irish writers in comics. Right, I I think the fact, I do think that the fact that there are a lot of British writers, I think a lot of them were probably sensitive to the Irish question. Sympathetic to the Irish. But then also, like, I just... Probably was very much like, I don't know how to deal with this. Right. And especially if you are British and are someone who's more left and aware of like the colonial problem in Ireland, you don't feel necessarily equipped to write about it yourself if you're like English. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think I've, I've definitely read interviews with like with like English creators who have kind of been like, in a way that there are certainly like, like, like white American creators who like are sympathetic to we're sympathetic like, to, to, to black, black people but causes. are worried about like, writing i don't know how to themselves. deal i don't know how to tackle right this. yeah and there are certainly english ones who were like i don't know really what to do on this i think there was a similar hesitation and so i think that part of the problem is with very few exceptions the most iconic superhero characters we have were created before 2000 yeah so that's an issue and that's why particularly you look at dc where they're always resetting a lot of the time it goes back to these straight white Anglo characters because they were the ones who existed already in the 50s, 60s, even further back than that in some cases. With Ireland, it was just always a touchy thing in the periods that were the most creatively robust for this genre. So that's why you end up with characters who lean too far into it, like Shamrock, who we'll get to in another question, (laughs) Or characters like Banshee and Siren, where it's a very light touch. It's something in their backstory, but it's not something we're going to talk about a ton because it's controversial. I think Banshee has, to some extent, stuck around purely because he's a giant size X-Men team member. I mean, you can't really, outside of Thunderbird, even Sunfire, who never got a real push, always comes back. Because that issue is so iconic that those characters, like Thunderbird, despite being dead for 40 years until- He certainly haunted the stories for that entire time. All the time. He would pop up in cameos. There'd be flashback panels. He would be a ghost sometimes or like whatever. Like those characters have a long shadow. And so Banshee was one of those- yeah, he endured because he endured of the nostalgia part of it. Yes, and Gen X also ran for 75 issues, which is something that now would be crazy, the idea yeah. of a 75-issue run. He just is a character who exists eternally to a lot of people. Yeah, 
That's the establishment. He also like didn't do anything for a good fifteen but yeah, years. But yeah, that said, he died in two thousand five and came back in what, like 2017, 18 or something. So but like he did nothing for the eighties and then did nothing from two thousand till now. He sits out a lot. He just does continue to exist. That's actually that leads into yeah. Clay Oglesby writes, "Hi Connor and Tom, long time listener, first time caller here. Connor, thank you for the love you shown the entire Cassidy clan, Sean, Teresa, Tom, and Kane. My question has to do with the lack of love that others have shown Sean of the five second Genesis X-Men that stuck around in quotes, because it's not like Thunderbird chose to leave. Actually, I think there's a good case to be made that Thunderbird did choose to leave, but that's something to save for a Thunderbird episode. Ooh, yeah. I'm going to leave that to you, but I'm fascinated by it. I look forward to hearing about there's it. There's a, there's like a weird suicidal edge to that sequence. That yeah. No, I, 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 as you say it, I met clicked. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that aside, Banshee gets the least attention both in the comics and in other media. Why do y'all think that is? In the past, I blamed Claremont and Byrne for writing him out right before Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past, but there must be more to it than that, right? Thanks, Clay. Clayford Oglesby on the Discord. I think he's an awkward character to fit into the Second Genesis team because he is so much older than all of the other characters. Yeah. There's a there's like a YA appeal. Not it's not quite YA. It's I guess it's not YA because they're like college new adult age, if, we're, if, we're, if, we're, if we're you know we're not nope we're not that's not a real category. Don't start with me. I was trying to appeal to your publishing side, bro. I'm sorry. No, because <laughs> the worst thing. No, because every like two years someone is like, what about new adult? I'm like it's not a real age category. It's simply not. That's called ninety percent of all fiction is about people in their early twenties. <laughs> that's not an age category. That's called a Bildungsroman. That's an it's a coming of age narrative. That's most fiction. But I yeah, digress. I do. Th- I do feel. I do feel like the, the point of it is like that. Like those other new like Genesis like characters are at a at this coming of age point at this build at this like transitional moment of their lives and learning about themselves, discovering themselves. And Banshee is just like, I got my shit figured out. Yeah, I'm 40 and I know who I am. The most shocking thing that happens to him is finding out he has a daughter, but that doesn't even really happen on page because by that point, he's mostly shuffled off already. Right. The oldest character, besides Wolverine, who is his own mysterious thing, and he's discovering stuff about himself because he has no memories, right? Apart from Wolverine, the oldest character on the second Genesis team is Storm. She's 25. The rest of them are younger than her. Right. Scott is maybe around the same age as her, but like they're the older ones. Everybody else is like 19 to 22. And Sean is like 38 to 42. And it's just a very different vibe. He doesn't fit in terms yeah. of the soap opera that Claremont is generating. And it makes more sense to send him and Moira off to be supporting characters. He just doesn't quite fit on the team. You have, I mean, like, yeah, everyone has, they have their thing that they're, like, 19 to 25 is such a crucial age, like, time of figuring shit out for yourself. And, mm-hmm. yeah, like, I mean, Nightcrawler, you have, like, he's, like, dealing with his, his, his religion and his, like, and his swagger and sexiness. And being sexual while looking the way he does. He's dealing with all that. Like, everyone he's got has a lot a going thing. on. Yeah. Right. And Sean's kind of like, I've been married. I've, I've, you know, fought for the I've been to Interpol. I've I've been through a lot of crap, and I'm like kind of like I'm I'm settled now in who I am. In giant size, he says to Charles, "I think I'm a little too old for this." It sets the tone from the very beginning. There are ways you could use Sean to like if, if, if you take, if if you challenge his perceptions of himself. I think there are some really interesting things you could do with him, but it would really take the story to focus on him. Nightcrawler and Colossus and Storm, like their shit can can be affected in any story. 
Right. To challenge his perceptions of himself, you have to make it a very Sean-centric story. And there isn't really enough page real estate most of the time to do that. Even in right. Gen X, which he's in for 75 issues, it's much more about the kids. And actually, when one of the adults gets the focus, it's usually Emma. Because yeah. she's the one going through her, I'm a good guy now. She has the siblings come in. He has like a couple little Black Tom arcs, but they're not that substantial. And Siren is busy in another book. Even Black Tom doesn't really challenge Sean's sense of self in the same way. Because in no, the way he's because presented, Sean uses like, Black Tom you. as like an I'm great because you're not. Like that's right. the, you know. I do love that that recent X-Men Unlimited comic did use Tom to challenge Sean's sense of self. I thought mm-hmm. that was a really good dramatic choice. Absolutely. And worked out tremendously. But I think there's, he, but that's, they, like you have to make some very conscious decisions and it's harder to make a universal appeal with someone who's like 40 and thinks they have their shit figured out. Right. And it's like live life and is like pretty content in their life. Patrick Wheeler writes, hello, Connor and Tom. This is the one spelled Padraic. <laughs> I love Sean because he's the closest thing Southern Ireland has to a sex symbol. I would, I would say like Colin Farrell is. Uh, if you mean Absolutely in comics, you're not wrong because there aren't that many in comics. I've noticed that X characters like Emma and Huberto think Sean is hot. It's like he's a sexy person, sexy person. Does that make sense? What do they find particularly appealing? Is it just daddy issues? Thanks, Patrick. For Emma and. Beto, daddy issues are definitely a factor for both of those characters. (laughs) Um, Like in a big way, like kind of a driving factor for both of those characters. That's why Emma gets caught up with Shaw as a young woman. That's why Beto, I mean, his whole arc for the first 15 years of his publication is about how much he is disappointed in his criminal father. But I think that with Sean, it's a couple things. One is, yes, he has like a comforting dad vibe, but also like a sexy older man vibe. He also, though, he's fun. Like he he doesn't fit with the, it, he actually, it's interesting. The reason he gets written out of the second Genesis team is the same reason Karma gets written out of the New Mutants because they don't feel like an age cohort of the rest of the group. And so they have to go, but... Unlike Karma, who very much feels positioned as, like, older than them in the New Mutant stories, to the point where she's gone by, like, issue six, Sean is spirited, spry, youthful. Like, he may be older than them by 10 or 15 years, but they all have a good time with him down the pub, you know? Oh, yeah. I think there's a certain appeal to someone who is more experienced and more worldly than you, but doesn't make you feel condescended to. Bear with me on this. This is where this makes sense, but I've been thinking about it. When the Friends reunion aired, okay? Sure. There was a meme that especially got around on Irish Twitter about, there was a shot of Matt LeBlanc just kind of like sitting, lean back in his button down shirt. And everyone's like, oh my God, this is everyone's Irish uncle. Who's like kind of, who's like both like super cool with the kids and also a little bit embarrassing because he's kind of a man child, but also mm-hmm. he's got your back all the time. And he's a little embarrassing. Like I'm, I, I got pulled some up, but there's just like Matt LeBlanc is that is, is the dad on Christmas. He's happy to see you open your gifts, but he doesn't know what any of them are because your mom got them all, but he's happy to watch you open them. And he just like sits back and he's like, oh yeah, cool. I'll listen to the kids talk. And he's cool because he's older. And he's like, I, I'll, I'll buy you beers at the wedding. I'll get some drinks for you at the right. wedding. Even though you're underage, 
And I'll talk he to you. He definitely has a fun uncle vibe, which is also very specifically sexy to some people. Right. And I think and that there is like, yeah, it's a fun uncle vibe. And I do think because people with daddy issues are there that like, even though Sean is not necessarily a great dad, that he's got the cool, that, that he's a good person largely mm-hmm. and has the cool uncle vibe. People kind of project that onto him that like, oh, cool. Well, you're a good like patriarchal father-ish figure. He also, when they all met him, did not have kids that they knew of. So he was like daddy vibes without the actual baggage of like being a dad. And even once they know about Teresa, he's not parenting. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's not his way. Still a dad without being a dad, even after he finds out that he has a 15-year-old daughter. Mm -hmm. For better and for worse. Chuck Marsh writes, hello, Connor and wonderful guest. Coming in from the cartoon and being given the Claremont run as oral history as a kid, I'd always thought Banshee was just Moira's boy toy. Part of Moira's second act after dumping Charles and having a Stella gets her groove back situation that turned into a relationship. But when I actually went back and read the stories, it shocked me that at most he's about the same age as Moira and Charles, definitely far older than the 05 and the second Genesis team, which was absolutely shocking. Do you think it's weird that Sean doesn't get the same respect that other mutant elders do. I know he's not centuries old like Raven or even his first centennial like Irene, but in this new generation Sean is an elder if I'm reading things right. Hmm. Or do you think they should just ignore it and make him and Maeve very youthful parents due to an early 20s pregnancy? Also, as is the way of the podcast and the Claremont era in general, I'd like to discuss a male character by focusing on how they interact with a more dynamic female character. I know this will have been asked and discussed, but I might as well ask the obvious question. Sean and Emma in Gen X. Were they fucking? Was it a one-time we-just-stopped-em-plate moment? Were they casual partners? Did anyone catch feelings? Was the Sean and Emma pairing Emma's first step toward finding uptight Boy Scouts with dark sides hot and thus led to Scott and Emma? The whole Emma-Sean sex shebang. Thoughts? That's it. Here's to my favorite mutant, who has had a pretty shitty week because this was sented during <laughs> number four I'm go backwards from there and i'm going to say that I, I actually would love i would love in the krakoa era now for sean sean and emma definitely i think we established this episode already that mm-hmm. they definitely have banged at least once i think they fucked whether, at least once during yeah. gen x whether or not it was something they want to talk about or not like right. it happened i would kind of love to see some spark come up between them now i think it would i would too. wrench in the Wolverine, Cyclops, Jean, Emma, polyamory. I think it would be really interesting. Well, also because Emma knows about Moira now and Sean, post-resurrecting after the face-off moment, probably, (laughs) again, does not know about Moira. Right. So that's like a dark secret that could complicate their relationship. It could be interesting. I mean, now it may not be a secret for long. It depends on like what moira.exe is up to in uh, her new era talk about getting your groove back she's getting yeah. her digital groove back emma clearly likes that she that kind of yeah that, like, as the question said like emma there's something positive for her about the boy scout with the dark side mm-hmm. and i feel like sean is really good for her in that case in, in an interesting way not like forever i don't want to get married and be like run off and be in the be happy forever in a boring way but i think there's an interesting appeal on that like he's stable and she's like doing all her shit and Sean, the way he did with Moira, he'd be like, okay, well you did a fucked up thing, but you know, I love you. Yeah. And so I did your fucked up thing. I feel like there is for Emma, an interesting narrative element to having her paired with a man who's more traditionally heroic than she is. And so I think that going back to Emma and Sean, which is not something out of the blue, it's a very classic X-Men relationship at this point. 
would be an interesting direction to go in. As for why he doesn't get as much respect as other mutant elders, I think it's because he's never demanded it. Yeah. He is seen as kind of a happy-go-lucky, fun guy. The only people who really respect him like that are the Gen X kids. And then he was dead for a really long time. So if you look at, I mean, he missed the entire decimation era, which is important to recognize because that was the most dire crisis that mutant kind has ever faced. And he wasn't there. So the characters who tend to get a lot of street cred for helping to manage and support mutant kind through that moment He's not included among them because he was dead. I am thinking now, and I don't want to get, this is a rabbit hole we can fall down very hard, but it's about what Sean would have done during Decimation and during Schism. And I feel like so much of it is- He, he would like, have been with Psych, I think. You're all kind of doing some bullshit, but like, yeah, yeah. I think he would be on Psych side all, all the way through there. He'd be like, you're all being very melodramatic about this. Let's be practical. And this is the way to go. The problem that I have was, well, we, this is truly too much of a rabbit hole. I don't buy Wolverine in Schism, but I think that Sean would have been concerned about the kids. So I could see it be, I, I could see it going either way there, but he was dead. So it doesn't matter. We don't have to think about it, honestly. Yeah. We can look to the future instead. Yeah, him not demanding authority is because he's the cool, he plays the cool uncle role. Exactly. So he's never demanded respect in that way. And therefore he's not really treated as like a venerable character. Ryan L. writes, hi, Connor and Tom. Firstly, thank you for spending some time talking about my favorite sexy Irishman, Mr. Cassidy. Some questions for you. Tom, what do you think would be Sean's favorite go-to Irish-American folk rock album? Why? Favorite Irish-American folk rock album. I mean, that's a, Ooh, that's a tricky one that I'm going to try not to plug my own record for fuck's sake available now on all record labels. I About would say that, we can expand to Irish and not necessarily Irish American. Cause like how many, I think he finds Irish Americans annoying. We've seen that like many yeah, times. I do think that, I think that he would have a weak spot. I was going to say he'd have a weak spot for flogging Molly, but no, I think that dropkick Murphys are honestly I was going to say, I think the dropkick Murphys centrist, are a bit more, more centrist and like, uh-huh. Uh, I, just wrote, I just wrote an article about their politics, uh, but they, uh, they're they a bit more accessible. I remember buying Do or D- their more first album. More dad rock came than out, vlogging Molly And I bought it with my dad say. over that album in 1997 when it came out, their first album. And, it was, and the dad a- a- angle was there and their, the dad angle's there with them. Connor and Tom, where on Krakoa do you think Sean would best fit? I always felt from his Interpol training and police training that he could be a big asset to X-Force. That or he could lead another young mutant book. There's so much more to him than his mutant ability and I feel most writers lose sight of his other assets. Thanks again for your time and sharing your love for who I feel is a very underrated mutant. Cheers, Ryan. Well, I never lose sight of his assets, let me just say. But <laughs> I think the best place for him is the place that he's been solicited to show up, which is Legion of X. I feel like he is absolutely the right person to be helping Kurt with the not-a-cops of Krakoa. Like learning how to take that kind of training and apply it in a way that is more beneficial to society than policing is, is a natural evolution of Sean's character and I think would be a smart direction to take the character in. I mostly agree with that. I think the interesting thing about Sean as a cop is that like the good and bad of it is that Sean is the cop who is genuinely good at being a cop. He's a good cop. He's the cop who does the good right thing all the time. Right. And the question becomes, what does it mean to depict good cops? Right. Like, what are you endorsing 
the existence of police officers. Like, what are you doing? Right. right. And so I think that pivoting him in a direction where like he and his fellow like Catholic second Genesis guy who wants to do charitable good work <laughs> or whatever are going to be more like social workers on Krakoa who are solving mysteries and crimes and things without a carceral answer, which seems to be what the goal of the Legion of X is. I just think that's a smart place for him to be. And I hope he gets to do cool stuff in that book. As for like putting him on a young mutants book, I don't think that would work because the new mutants at this point are the teachers. Like the generation has shifted and I wouldn't want to take that from them and give it back to the older characters. I would enjoy seeing Sean on X-Force because I think, as I said, like, in, in, in the second Genesis realm, no one challenged his sense of identity. I think X-Force might challenge his sense of identity. If Beast grabs him and is like, use your Interpol skills and do some shit for me. And Sean's like, mm-hmm. cool, I can do that because I am a good person. And I'm a cop, but I'm a good person and I will do the right thing. And I will spy and do whatever for the good purpose. And then he'll have moments where Beast does what Beast does. And Sean will have to go like, I know I will never betray I will never abuse your surveillance state. I personally will never abuse the surveillance state, but I can use it to help us for good purposes. What, what I perceive as good purposes. And Beast will be like, cool, now you've done, you've put the spying things here for me. And now we can use those for everything and I can do all what I want. So I'm like, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what I wanted to do. And I think that would challenge his sense of self as a cop. I think you could put him on X-Force would be a very dark direction to take the character. I think a lot depends on if he's going to find out about Moira and what his reaction to Mm. that will be. Because I think that will set the tone for where the character goes from here. But you need a writer with a story for him, right? So we'll see. I mean, it looks like Cy Spurrier has... I mean, he's on the cover of a Legion of X issue. So, like, he's going to be around... I'm intrigued to see what happens. I do feel like X-Force is a little stuffed as a book. I agree. There's a lot of characters in that book and not all of them get the page time already that maybe you, like Domino hasn't had anything focused on her in quite some time. Sage is finally coming into focus and that's Percy's design. It's like, it's a revolving thing around Hank and Logan. But I do think adding another character to that mix might, overstuff the book yeah i don't actually want Percy to add fancy in there but i think fancy would be interesting to watch He'd be interesting struggle absolutely. with his fash instinct versus his good cop right instinct. right absolutely it would be a good way to challenge itself mm-hmm. and to kind of find a synthesis of like the good guy banshee that we know and the ex-core banshee who was so yeah. off base with everything he was doing lewis wilkes writes oh lewis aka adrian frost husband on the discord wrote in again asking us if Emma and Banshee should get together. And yeah, we definitely want to see more of it. He points out that imagining Emma as Terry's stepmother is extremely funny. And that (laughs) is extremely Uh, funny. I agree. That's the com I would watch. I mean, I did argue, I think, during the Ladies Mastermind episode that Reagan should try to seduce Banshee because Reagan as Terry's stepmother would also be very, very funny. I remember that. That's good. That's good. That's good. David Welsh writes, Dear Connor and guest, Banshee's always struck me as one of the very few X-Men characters who reads almost entirely, if not entirely, heterosexual. A Kinsey 0.5, factoring in the probability that a little bit of his love triangle with Maeve and Black Tom was complicated by some sexual tension with his cousin. I'm sure I'm not the first person to bring that up on this episode. <laughs> well, 
as the SNL Irish dating show skit that I do love illustrated, dating your cousin in Ireland is not that weird because it's a very small island and there just aren't. The st- I mean, everybody always says, apart from immigrants who've come to Ireland, the old chestnut is that there are only 12 families in Ireland, period. <laughs> so at a certain point, you run out of non-cousins. That said, I disagree that Banshee reads entirely heterosexual, but that's because I know a lot of Irish and British men who go down the pub and are then like a little less heterosexual than you would think. That said, I, I agree with you on that. I think that like I think Banshee plays straight there, but I also feel like I don't know if if I ran at him at the Eagle, I wouldn't be that that surprised. I wouldn't be that shocked. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, you're here too. Okay, okay, cool. I'd be like that tracks. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very cl- there's a slightly closet thing there about like the older man who is a little and there's like, a Catholic I do this, thing also the Catholic like thing. there's a lot of there's a lot going on. Here's what I'll say. Banshee leans into gay aesthetics so strongly that I would be shocked if he had not dabbled. I agree. In any case, David continues, keeping in mind that the only other likely straight person in the X-Men franchise is probably Dazzler, as you've pointed out. How is it that those two haven't had sex yet? Their complementary power sets would suggest they'd really vibe in combat, and certainly that could extend to more intimate moments. This would also set up the possibility of a Dazzler-Banshee-Lady Mastermind love triangle, and I would love that for me. Thanks for the great podcast. Best, David. I think part of it is that Dazzler is friends with his daughter, so that would be weird. I mean, they're in a band well, also, together. Also, in, in, in Astonishing X Men, in the Rosenberg <laughs> Astonishing X Men, Dazzler and Banshee kind of did have sex, which cured him of being a super feral zombie. He became a normal zombie, like a mm-hmm. somewhat co- coherent zombie, after they had a weird sound and music. They did a mutant circuit thing that made him feel more together. But I think if you're at, like, here's the thing. Allie has terrible tasted men, but Ooh. he was pretty gross looking as a zombie. So yeah. I, I think that would have been a bridge too far, even for Allie. Allie's not, not badass enough. She's not Moira or Emma or Maeve levels. I just, I, love that. I mean, don't get me wrong, but like, she helped coordinate the rebellion in Mojo World. She's tougher than you give her credit for, potentially. Fair, but I also, I, I, I think she's, she's but Banshee doesn't darkness. know that, really. You know, yeah. like, yeah, no, I think, well, it depends. If it's like Eve of Destruction era Dazzler, where she's like, I watched Longshot die, apparently, and like all of that, she was pretty dark. But by that point, Banshee was down a bottle. So, right. It was not the moment. Bran Hale writes, Dear Connor and Tom, I'm a born and raised Angelino, but I'm black, so I understand, Connor, if you don't do an accent. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I exclusively do white people accents on this show. I think that that's a rule I really ought to stick to, and I feel secure in that choice. <laughs> As a huge fan of Generation X, it was always difficult for me to accept Sean molding the minds of those kids, two of whom were black, when he was a cop. I remember reading that book as a kid and wondering when he was going to tell Everett that the cops are there to help. Yeah, Ev saw that in his first appearance. I definitely trusted Emma in that situation more. Anyway, thanks for the amazing podcast, and please know that I did all for the Aracusi, Make Mine Cerebro, Brand They Them, Brand on Twitter. What I do think that, I mean, you look at the X-Core arc and those girls show up to join his thing to keep an eye on him and yeah. end up pressed into his fascist police force. This is another reason why I don't really want him mentoring kids again in a book 
the cultural moment has moved on from the kind of setting where Sean Cassidy, agent of Interpol, is the person you want teaching your kids like moral values. Sean would definitely tell them that like there are some crooked cops out there and there are bad cops. But in general, the system of policing is good and we can uh, rely on this. I think I, I'm not, this is not me. This is not me saying this to be clear. To be clear, this is not me saying this. I just want to make this. it very clear that is not necessarily the position of the podcast. I'm saying this making is, that very clear. Well, I, this is how I think, I think their question uh, is accurate. I think their assessment of uh, Banshee in that case is, uh, yeah, it's it's concerning. Yeah, he would be like, okay, well, there, there are some bad cops. I agree. But there are sometimes adults who know the good stuff to do, kids. And even I can see Angelo being like, dude, really? Are you kidding me right now? And Sean being like, well, and I, I can see Angelo pushing back against Sean on that a little bit, even. And then Here's the thing. It's not something that 90s comics were going to touch in that way. Sure. And so they don't. And I think that if you were going to do it now, you would have to touch it to some extent. And I would love to see that. I think it would, it'd be I would awesome. too, but I, I'm not sure that any writer would want to like necessarily wade into that. It's a messy area, yeah. You know? Roscoe Gorse writes, I'm from England, so you can do an accent. Oh, with the name Roscoe Gorse, I couldn't possibly tell. <laughs> not to insult your name, but just like that's a very British, that's a very British sounding name. Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. Banshee's one of the earliest X-Men to be revealed to have an evil sibling. And not only that, his evil sibling is together with Xavier's evil sibling. It's a cousin, to be clear, but I get what you're saying. They definitely feel like brothers in the way that they're written. There are many more examples of this trend. Cassandra Nova, Mikhail Rasputin, Vulcan, Jamie Braddock, Strife, and probably more. So my question is, why is this such a prevailing and common trend? And which others of those characters would make a great couple like Black Tom and Juggernaut? Love the pod. Keep up the great work, Roscoe Gorse. It's just a classic soap opera thing. It's also a classic mythic thing, like the evil brother who you must kill. Right. The brother's a foil. It's a foil. It's the other. Right. You know, about, the first thing I think about, like, going back, like, much ado about nothing has Don yeah, John. Exactly. There. Like, there's always, like, the kind of bastard brother has been a trope in at least Western drama for a very long time. Well, I mean, you go back to Hector in Paris, right? Like, they're not actually in direct conflict, but it's very much that. Yeah. Or Agamemnon and Menelaus is also two brothers where it's like, well, oh, yeah. the fine mess you've gotten us into. Shit, who are we kidding? It's Cain and Abel. And Abel, also. right, yes. It's the same thing throughout all cultures, the idea of brothers in conflict. And so in superhero comics, it's very natural because if you have a hero, you say, well who is a logical villain. And often it's the person who's closest to you, but resents you for it or because of things that existed in your past or whatever. As for who would make a great couple of the evil siblings, I actually think Jamie Braddock and Strife would be really funny together if that was ever like a storyline that happened. And Cable and Betsy had like a moment in X-Force I was fond of the cable Betsy thing. It was weird, but I was like... It was like, so weird, but like... But I was, I was kind of into it. And now, if Betsy's with Rachel, which seems to me to be what is going on, then so. Strife is also Rachel's brother and son. It's complicated. Don't worry. Go back <laughs> to the Rachel episode and the Strife episode. But so I think that Jamie and Strife linking up could be very funny. And Jamie has like rude top energy to me and strife is a bitchy bottom who needs that 
in his life. And I feel like it's the same way that like whenever Jamie and Sinister have been in a room together, the sexual charge is through the roof, in my opinion. Like when they're bartering over like making Betsy a clone body in Excalibur, I was just like Sinister wants Jamie Raddick to rail him in the crown. And like they're fighting over the capes. Remember when he, he took oh, the capes. cape? That was a very like was that was a, like a BDSM so power play move where it was like it's I'm gonna flirt. take your cape. Yeah, I think that would be fun. And if you look at Mister Sinister, if you go all the way back to Claremont's original intention as like Gambit's evil brother, then Jamie and Sinister are also kind of a fun. I mean, also I, I just want I want it to be made explicit that Kane and Tom love each other. Well, that's. The number that, one, I, I, I want to write it. I want to write it. Marvel, if you're listening, let me write the wedding of Juggernaut and Black Tom. That's my, that's my pitch. Just put it out there. I think there's genuinely a lot of beauty to kind of pull out of that about the two of them. Chris Claremont, in an interview, I believe it was the Jay and Miles 100th episode, was talking about Juggernaut and referred to him as straight, meaning like not a bad guy, like criminal wise. And then pause was like, I mean, like not a bad guy. Which means that Chris Claremont knew exactly why that word wasn't appropriate to use in that sentence. You know what I'm saying? That's my read. I think it's been there since the 70s. And I want it to be a thing. Yeah. Fabian wants it to be a thing. Every writer who ever handled those characters for a long period of time, besides Chuck Austin, who, again, God love you, Chuck, but we don't care what you thought. We just don't care. Everybody else is very affirmative about those characters being a couple. And I think it's time for it to be the case it just gives a beautiful context to like why they like both feeling like the black sheep of their families and why that is it also adds such a layer to tom keeping Teresa from sean and that's like not i mean that's problematic in its way right but there is something powerful yeah it's like he wanted to have a daughter and couldn't have one himself and he felt that sean didn't deserve her so there's something very interesting i find that beautifully tragic and like a really yeah me too i want to dig into it you know (laughs) yeah parker service writes hello connor and esteemed tom I'm from Salt Lake, so if you want to do like an impression of someone from Real Houses of Salt Lake City, I guess that would be the most appropriate. I'm doing Lisa Barlow, even though she's originally from New York, because that's the housewife of Salt Lake City I can imitate. So I'm going to do Lisa for this letter. Banshee's always been one of my favorite X-Men since I first encountered the X-Men watching First Class. When I started reading X-Men comics, he was also a sign I should have realized earlier that I'm bisexual. Live and learn, I guess. My question is about legacy characters, which at least as far as costumes go with Teresa, Sean kind of is. Growing up reading DC, I love the JSA and the question and everyone else. Some of my favorite stories have always been when a character proves they're worthy of the name. It's a silly trope, but I'm a real sucker for it i love that why hasn't terry ever had that story like not just taking on the name but have a story where at the end sean says i terry you should take me place on the team you're better than i i think she deserves that it wouldn't take away from my favorite screamer with best parker bino from the discord so terry did notably take sean's name in x-factor investigations after he was dead there was an arc where she took the name banshee it didn't stick because Peter David then put her on a bus to Tirnanog <laughs> and he came back before she did. So when she came back, she was siren again. Also, like, I mean, I get the the idea of like battling for the name. I understand. Also, in this case, Banshee's name literally means woman spirit. Well, and that's so- <laughs> why Peter David was like, I finally made Teresa Banshee because Banshee was always supposed to be a woman and Stanley wouldn't let them. Right. right. It was always meant to be Banshee. Right. It's always been like what Banshee was always meant to be. 
The thing is, honestly, that like Siren has just never been that big a character. Like she's just not. And I like her. I did a four hour episode on her. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Siren, but she never got the push that you need to take that. Like, for example, I think Betsy's going to be Captain Britain forever. And that's because Brian is not as popular a character as Betsy. Sean is a more popular character overall than Siren is, or at least I would say a more well-known character. And that often is what it comes down to, to really inherit a legacy, especially at Marvel. You have to be a bigger deal character than the person you're taking it from. I mean, Carol and Betsy are the two really big examples, and it's because Carol Danvers is a bigger character than Marvel ever was, and Betsy Braddock is a bigger character than Brian Braddock ever was. And I think that's unusual. Yeah, especially for female characters versus male characters. So it's just one of those things where I think that the giant size X-Men of it all looms too large. The Generation X of it all looms too large. As you pointed out, you got to know Banshee through a Fox X-Men movie in which Banshee was a guy, was bizarrely the brother from Get Out before he was the brother <laughs> from Get Out. That, that, that actor is great, but I was just I like, that, yeah. Just like, why is, first of all, like, Banshee being young was perverse to me to begin with, but also, like, just not... Not the weirdest choice made in that movie. Lots of very (laughs) strange choices made in X-Men First Class, so, yeah. If nothing else, I would like to see Siren and Banshee together in a story again. Beyond, like, I liked the Infinity comic, but I'd love to see them, like, on a mission or something. It would be fun. Yeah, I I would love to see them... As we talked about that, we read that scene where like they're like, well, if, if I can't be your father, I can try to be your friend here. I would actually mm-hmm. love to see them in action. Yeah, in action, in a, in, a, in a mission together, dealing with whether they are coworkers, partners, or are they yeah. friends, or are they... Right, what's their parent, relationship a, a dad? Like? Like, I want to see in more. In the Infinity comic, she's basically like, listen, like, you're my dad, but Tom is like actually my dad. Like, she doesn't say that, but she says it, and she's like, and you need to be cool with that. Like, you weren't around for my whole childhood, whether or not that's your fault. And then you were dead for a really long time. So like, I, you know, you need to respect the family relationship and the fact that you're a little bit outside of it. You're welcome, but it's complicated. I really admired her emotional intelligence in that scene. I did too. I thought it was really, I mean, particularly given everything she just went through, I was like, oh, Terry's come out the other end. Good for her. It's really cool. My dad, this person raised me and was a father figure to me. You were my bio dad and you're a great person who I like but you're not, you did not raise me. A couple of people pointed out that I saw, a couple of people were like, it's so insensitive for Sean to say I could use a pint in front of his daughter who's a recovering alcoholic. And I'm like, yeah, he doesn't know her that well. Like, <laughs> it wouldn't, I don't think that would be the first thing he would think of. You know what, because he right. doesn't, he wasn't around for her recovery. Like, that's not, they're, they don't have a relationship like that. They just yeah. don't. I wish we could see more of them not having a relationship like that. <laughs> yeah, we're like trying to build one. I think it could yeah. be interesting. Sam Gladstone writes, we all recognize Sean as an outright hottie, and he was even played by one in the Gen X made-for-TV movie, a man who would also go on to play one of the Gorch brothers on Buffy at Slayerfest 98. That is true. I know you generally don't do fan casting, but who's your go-to ginger hottie who could embody that Cassidy sexiness now? Thanks so much, and make mine cerebro. Sam Gladstone, Reese Indigo on Twitter. I have always said he's not Irish, he's Scottish, but Kevin McKidd is my Banshee fan casting, if he can do an Irish accent. That said, I bet there are a lot of great Irish actors who I'm just not thinking of. 
But ever since Rome, I've loved Kevin McKidd. I'd also love to get Kevin McKidd off Grey's Anatomy, where he plays the most loathsome character on that show, and get him instead into a superhero franchise where he makes lots of money and is in spandex clothes. Not a ginger, but my first impulse there is to say Jamie Dornan. Too brunette. That's why I love Jamie That's, Dornan. Yeah, he's but too brunette, like... I also think he's too young. Hmm. I think he's like 40, isn't Am I wrong about that, about that? He's, okay, he's 39. I guess that makes sense. I'm thinking, though, of like, I guess part of it, the issue is what age are we casting everyone? Like, Kevin McKidd is in his late 40s, and that feels for an X-Men, like, for an X-Men movie where a lot of the actors are going to be 30-ish, I feel like you want Banshee to be like 10 to 15 years older than everybody else. Does that make sense? So like I, I skewed a little older in my casting. That said, the Marvel Cinematic Universe tends to skew younger because they want to lock these people in for like 30 years. So for all we know, they're going to cast like a 25-year-old <laughs> Carol Danvers style and just like lock them in. With the men, they do tend to be okay with going older though. So you never know. Brian Gleason is the only other like ginger I can really think of in that case. Mm. Uh, Donald's brother. And- yeah. Brendan's son. And yeah. I, but I, I don't, I do not mean this as an insult he's cute. to Brian Gleason. He's cute. But he's not, he's not hot enough. He's, just he's not, not hot, hot enough. enough. He's just not. He's a cute, but he's not. Right, he's if you're listening, ginger, but he's not. Brian yeah. Gleason, if you're listening, I'd hit it. I'm just saying, like, if we were casting, I don't know if it's like the raw sexuality of a Sean Cassidy. Logan Devlin writes, hello, everyone. I'm from Northern Ireland myself, and I'd love a Northern Irish or Southern Irish take on Banshee, given his history with the IRA. I'm still saddened by the canceled X-Men Green Book that Declan Shalvey pitched. I know Mm -hmm. it's hard with the sliding timescale, but I think this is a story worth telling, and it's one that can't be hand-waved always. Now, Shamrock, what a terrible character. (laughs) When is Molly Fitzgerald's episode? No, but what do you think we could do to fix that character other than change everything? She's, as far as I know, the only Northern Irish rep in X-Men, maybe even in Marvel. I'd love to see more Irish mutants in general, but maybe fix this shitty one first. Love the pod, my American Irish friend. Sincerely, Logan Devlin. So Shamrock isn't even a mutant as far as I know. She's like not really an X-Men character. I mean, you could sort of interpret her as having like a mutant power to talk to ghosts, but mostly she's a magical character. Also, she's terrible. And I just think we probably want to leave her in obscurity where she belongs. What are your thoughts on Shamrock, Tom? I feel like where, where, whereas like Banshee, Banshee sort of tries to sidestep the IRA stuff, with the exception of May, which I, I will go into, I feel like Shamrock dives into it, like embraces it, and like massages it in a really, in a really uncomfortable way. Yeah. So Shamrock, for people who are not aware, is a character that Mark Grunewald and Bill Mantlo and a couple other people, I forget who the artists were, introducing Contest of Champions back in the 80s, which is like not a book you need to worry about. Her father is not just a nationalist, but like an active terrorist crazy guy. He takes her to the mountains with her brother and prays that one of them will be empowered to destroy the British. And she ends up developing a mystical aura that creates good luck or bad luck fields around her the luck of the irish one might say and she becomes the hero shamrock she basically is blessed by the empowered by the ghosts of everyone the ira killed or the british killed it's like all the innocent victims of the troubles their ghosts fill her and give her good luck 
Yeah. It's bad. It's a bad character in a bad story. Actually, the last time we saw her, FYI, she had retired from heroism and become a hairdresser. That's great. Good for her. She actually did Megan's hair for Megan's wedding at the end of Excalibur in the 90s. I love that for her. It was said in that Excalibur story that her luck just ran out one day. Like she slipped and fell and broke her leg and was like, oops, I guess I should retire from being a superhero if my luck's gone. And I think that was a good choice. Then she popped up much later in, she's just made cameos occasionally. She was in a story in Girl Comics, which was a thing they did around 2010. Again, as a hairdresser now in New York City. And then in Fearless Defenders, she became the owner of an Irish pub in Manhattan where like the heroines would pop up sometimes. I just feel like this is a character we don't need to super. (laughs) I'm honestly impressed that she's had a Zalady. Yeah. (laughs) One thing in the girl comic story is that she does order the ghosts that follow her everywhere to perform housework at her salon, which I think is funny. You know, they're like, wow, I died in a car bombing and now I have to sweep up beard shavings (laughs) from your salon floor. Great, cool. True heroine of the Irish people. She barely has a Zaladin. I think she has like 13 appearances total. What I will say about like the Banshee of it all, I think there's a lot to mine with it that I I think deserves to be explored and I think can be explored in really interesting ways, but it deserves, you know, it it would require some sensitivity, certainly. But I think that first... in, in whatever that X-Force issue, when he goes to check on Theresa, it's mentioned that like when Sean was in Interpol, he came back to, like, when he broke Tom's leg, was he came back to Ireland to deal with Tom's like criminal activities. And I completely assumed that Tom was selling drugs and or guns to both the IRA and the UVF, frankly, although he was certainly sympathizing with the IRA more so. And I would love to see more of that. And I would love to see more of, again, challenging Sean's sense of identity. I'd love to see a storyline where he's just like, oh, I understand why you are doing the actions you are doing. Mm-hmm. You have taken them to a violent point I do not like, but can I, I, I could see Sean going in there and trying to like talk someone back and be like, do not do this. Do not do this this way. And having the argument there in the comic in a really powerful way, I think potentially about like, do I have to do it this way mm-hmm. to get what I want? If my cause is good, do I have to do, go about it this way to get it? There's a really powerful story there. Also, I, I, I was reading some stuff. Is it ever explicitly stated that Maeve was killed by an IRA bomb? Just that she was killed in a bombing? Uh, she was killed in a bombing. It's one of those things like Magneto saying, just like the horrors of my childhood that were visited upon the Jews. If you're paying attention, it's very clearly what the story is telling you. I don't think it's explicitly said. Right, right. To be fair, but also like since those comics, when that was discussed, were written, we've had a Good Friday Agreement. There has been more information. There have been other, but there have been other incidents. Yeah, British involvement, but also like it's certainly not. Here's my thing. I think if she had not been killed in an IRA bombing, then Banshee's politics and personality and everything in the comics would be very different. If she had been killed by like British aggression, you know what I mean? It would have right, been a very what different if, story. What, what if, if he doesn't Banshee, know? What if Banshee now in, in Krakoa era Banshee discovers that Maeve was actually killed by one of the loyalist paramilitaries? I think that because of the sliding time scale, they're unlikely to dig into sure. the trouble stuff ever again. And if they do, I think they'll probably take a lighter hand with it. 
just That's because <laughs> it's a tricky thing. That actually leads into Connor McGee writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest, I'd first just like to say as one gay, though non-Jewish, Irishman named Connor who studied classics at university to another, how thankful I am to have stumbled upon your podcast during lockdown. I only just recently found my footing in the weird, wide, and wonderful world of the comic book X-Men, and your podcast has been instrumental in helping me piece together the various characters, backstories, and relationships that I've come across since picking up Hoxpox almost a year ago. Now for the topic at hand, Banshee. Before getting into the comics, my only knowledge of the X-Men had been the animated series, the Fox films, and the various video games I picked up as a kid. So I was aware of Banshee, but any exposure was quite limited. And needless to say, I was quite disappointed at the de-essification of Daddy Sean in X-Men First Class. I've been hoping and waiting for him to pop up in the Krakoa era, and sure, we got a brief feature in The Secret X-Men, but when I said I wanted to see more of Banshee's face, I didn't mean his appearance in the recent <laughs> X-Deaths of Wolverine finale. My question is less about the character himself and more about the role stereotypes have played in the creation of some of Marvel's older characters like Banshee. I won't lie when I say that I cringe at some of the things I've come across in back issues I've picked up since. An over-reliance on tropes like smoking pipes, countryside castles, unintelligible accents, leprechauns, and even some dehumanizing depictions of how Irish people supposedly look. I'd be interested to hear you and your guests' thoughts on how characters whose roots are so ingrained in these sometimes harmful stereotypes can and have been altered to better fit in the modern age. Tom, as an Irish-American and a Gwailgor, I'd love to hear your perspective on the character, which I'm sure you've already discussed at length, and whether or not you think Sean Cassidy represents the Ireland of today. I definitely don't think that Sean represents the Ireland of today. The Ireland of today is younger and more multicultural. Younger, more diverse. And, like, yeah, it's, yeah. Like, he certainly represents like an Ireland of a, of a certain time in the century. Mm-hmm. Oh, who is it? Is it uh, Chimambe? There's a saying about how the, the thing about stereotypes is not that they are untrue. It's that they're incomplete. Yeah. If you pick up some cultural tropes and do something with them, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. The issue is when you only pick up negative tropes and you apply them to everyone from this ethnic group and you don't present more complex portraits of the way that a country's culture is or whatever you want to do. You know, like you, you can't just say, here's our Irish character. He's a drunk who smokes a pipe and has a little button nose and yada, yada, yada. You have to make a more complex portrait than that. Yeah, and I think there's, I think a difficult thing with the X-Men franchise as long as it's been running is the fact that Claremont in particular, I think took stereotypes to begin with characters for a lot yes. of characters and then evolved them into more complete stories. Claremont was very interested in diverse casts, but he also came out of a Pulp Fiction tradition where diverse characters often are derived to some extent from racial stereotypes. You look at Danny Moonstar, one of the earliest episodes of this show, Darcy Little Badger talked about how, yeah, it's not ideal that Danny Moonstar like grew up in the mountains being mystical and can communicate with animals and all of this stuff. On the other hand, the fact that Danny is a spiritual character and does have talent with animals, particularly horses, is something that to Darcy felt culturally specific and valid in the sense that like mm -hmm. a lot of indigenous Native Americans do have specific horse training techniques that white people aren't always aware of. And that's something that the women of Darcy's tribe take a lot of pride in. So while she's not Cheyenne, she's Apache, she's still recognized in Danny something that she thought 
was genuine, even if it comes with the fact that Danny's power is to be a dream catcher and her other power is to have a psychic rapport with animals, which are both stereotypical things that a Native American character could do. I think Sean, similarly, his power is derived from an Irish myth and probably the most famous Irish myth to people outside of Ireland, which is the whale of the Banshee. He likes to go down the pub and drink a pint. He does smoke a pipe all the time. Not anymore, ever since Joe Casada banned tobacco, but... He calls everyone boyo, which... Yeah, or laddie. Like, it is very that. He does have a castle full of leprechauns. Like, (laughs) there's stuff there. But I do think that by the time of Gen X, he was a much more layered character than that. I do think that the reason I spent way too much time like re- rereading and rationalizing the leprechaun stuff was because of the stereotype thing. Like there are aspects, obviously there are aspects of Sean. He's very Darby O'Gill in his yes stage Irishness. But I like leaning into that stuff. For example, if I were, and I wouldn't now because fuck her, but if I were ever to be doing something in J.K. Rowling's world, I would have wanted to take those Jewish wizards that she declared exist in like one line and then do something with the violent anti-Semitic stereotype that the goblins are. Right. Do something there. Have the Jewish community in Wizarding Britain have some kind of relationship with goblins or an imagined relationship with goblins that the Anglo wizards think exists or like do something, lean into it. Because I think that once you have trafficked in a stereotype or in a hateful trope, whether or not you intended it or not, it's there in the text and there's something worth doing with it. I think that, for example, in the current era, one of the coolest things they're doing is leaning into the ancient mutants thing with Araco that's been tried a couple times and that always has a racially slightly fraught edge to it. Characters like Apocalypse, like they're so old, they're not white, they are warriors who care only about strength. Having Storm be the envoy to that culture from the X-Men and having her embrace that culture and see the value in it and explain it to some of the white characters who don't get it. I think digging into the messier stuff in these ongoing long, long, long franchises is often the way to go. I think that leaning into... I mean, here's a great example. I think that Peach Momoko is doing astounding things right now with her Demon Days stories that take some of the really Orientalist Asian characters from Marvel Comics and reimagine them in new ways. Her work with Marco Yoshida is so cool that I think if Marvel has any sense, Marco Yoshida as Scarlet Samurai in 616 is going to get a big push sometime soon. Put Peach on covers, put Peach on art. I mean, whatever you want to do, but like, go to the Sunfire episode if you want more details on all of the weirdness about Clan Yoshida. But I think you could take that Yakuza princess samurai honor story that's very tropey and doesn't necessarily represent modern Japan and develop that character until she does speak to something realer and more modern. And I think that that is what Banshee and Siren and Black Tom can do, even if they are to some extent stuck in a 60s and 70s notion of what Irish people are like. 
Connor, you've talked in previous episodes about how you'd like to see more Irish characters in comics, and I couldn't agree more. Not Shamrock, LOL. Although I really enjoyed the Irish energy and artwork during the Morrigan's appearance in the most recent X-Factor run. Personally, I'd love to see a new character who doesn't rely on the usual Emerald Isle shtick. Any suggestions from you both? I'm not going to make suggestions because if I ever get a chance to write a Marvel comic, my suggestions might go into the Marvel comic. But I agree with you. I think that... I'm of two minds. I think it would be cool to dig more into Celtic mythology because it's something that has been mostly untapped in the Marvel Universe, whereas like Norse and Greek and other pagan religions have been really mined for content for the superhero world. And there's so much cool stuff beyond just the Morrigan that you could do funding. I mean, the fact that Cahulin is not like a Marvel character is wild to me. When Thor and Heracles are running, uh, that's not true. Cullen, Cullen is in the is in the original Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, oh, that's so, true. You're right with Nikki and yeah. Starhawk and those people. I forgot about that. I did. I, I really enjoyed. I, I sincerely, I was sincerely touched to say that Leah Williams did the work really and made sure that that the Tampa Cullen stuff in the Shatterstar and Morgan story was there and was accurate. Yeah, because Peter David's version of it was, uh, let's say, not accurate. We- <laughs> it's not in continuity, but the X-Men first class, there's an issue where they're back to Keep. So I don't hate the issue. It's actually, I thought, a pretty good issue. But at one point, like, all the leprechauns kind of go crazy and start speaking. And they speak in this, like, fake version of Irish. And it's, it, I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate because, like, the rest of it's pretty good. But you're like... Irish is a real language that like people do speak. It, it does still it, it does exist. Like people still speak this language. It is useful. It is valuable. It's historically important. And to like not even do the work to like Google Translate on Irish is not good. But to not even do the work to go into Google Translate and be like, how do I make the zombie leprechauns say something legitimate in Irish? And mm-hmm. Just write write nonsense Irish words that look right. Irish-ish. Were was I was I was bummed. I was bummed by that. Yeah, I mean, I just think that the answer is, like with any new character you're creating in 2022, like, don't rely on a broad racial or cultural stereotype to define the character. Like, But if you want to play with a trope, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if you're coming from that community. I just think that there needs to be more to the character than the surface level stuff. Connor McGee continues... While I know this episode is about Sean, it has to be said that Black Tom's had some fantastic dialogue in this new era. Whoever had him shout mayo for Sam as he plunged through Beast's arteries deserves a raise. (laughs) That was Ben Percy. Apparently, what I heard is that he talked to some local comic shop owners in Ireland to get like slang for Black Tom to use in X-Force, which I think is- I have really enjoyed his his Black Tom dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, that's just a smart way to go is like ask people. Teeny and I were just talking about that on the bonus episode that I did with her about Knights of X and Catwoman. There was a bit in the Wiccan and Hulkling honeymoon special where she just texted me not with like any spoiler she was just like jewish fact check like real quick like you know and it's like i don't think there's anything i think that that's the best thing you can do as a creator if you're writing a character outside of your cultural experience is just call somebody out be like hey um is this authentic yeah. what's your thought on this you know garav milamagat a million thank yous connor mcgee i hope i didn't mangle that at the end there garav milamagat yeah that's, that's good my irish it's not great Last question, Krakoa Welcomes asks, what interesting facts would the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep reveal about you in the way that they revealed Logan's name? Oh. 
I was born with an extra thumb and the leprechauns would absolutely know because that's fairy shit, right? Like they probably have it somewhere in the underhill. I have a weird DNA mutation that makes my nipples go in. So that's what they would know about. Like any nipples? Yeah. I had those and then I lost weight and now they aren't anymore. I thought it would be that case too, but no. It's a a, a, a DNA thing. No, it is is genetic, but like sometimes your nipples just change with the rest of you. (laughs) Not in my case. Well, you know what? I love that (laughs) for you. There's nothing wrong with an any nipple. In fact, some might view it as more aesthetic and discreet. They're not protruding through your shirt. They're stealthy, even if you're cold. It's sort of an adaptation to the wet, not too warm climbs of Ireland. It's not the best X-Men power, to be honest, but as far as as, as a gene mutation goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being my guest. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you online and plug anything you want to plug? I know you have a new album out. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, at Tom Dunn. It's Tom with an an H, a H. Not a H. TomDunn.net has kind of all the links. I I recently put out a new album my second album of Irish folk music called For Fuck's Sake Volume 2, which is about whiskey and workers' rights. Very Irish. My indie rock band put out an album last year called Songs About Comic Books and Mid-30s Malaise, which some might also appeal to some of your <laughs> listeners. <laughs> There's a song about Cyclops in there that Leah Williams recently uh, posted, added to her Cyclops playlist, which is oh, exciting. I love that. Oh, yeah. Also, if you on TomDunn.net, you can just links to my fiction and plays and stuff, and Tom Dunn on Twitter or Instagram. I blog pretty much every day, a few times a day, on boingboing.net, and I'm also a writer at Wirecutter. So you can find, if you really need advice on air conditioners or things like that, I can, uh, you can find that too. There you go. Well, thank you again for joining me. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus much, much more. The Discord server, yada, 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 at Cerebrocast.com, the official landing page for the podcast for $5 a month at the House of Zaladine tier at Patreon.com slash Cerebrocast. You can get an ad-free experience, an ad-free MP3 version of every episode the moment they go up. You also get exclusive access to the secret files, the monthly House of Z mailbag is going up soon and there is a two and a half hour interview with teeny howard up now about knights of x and catwoman and the end of excalibur come join us don't bring any bad vibes but i think it's a good time next week's episode to round out season two will feature zeb wells who will be joining me to talk about nanny and the orphan maker and generally about his run on hellions it is too late to sending questions but i hope that you will enjoy i am really excited to talk to zeb and can't wait to share that with all of you. Season three of Cerebro will premiere in May, but in the meantime, there will continue to be some bonus content on the Patreon in April. So sign up if you can't wait for more Cerebro, but I am in desperate need of a break. <laughs> Doing this you deserve week it. <laughs> is, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of content to get out it's with me. And I'm a little exhausted, so I need a second to recharge. But... I'm so grateful that you're all here. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.